Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Bald Face Truth. BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. I'm so tired of the nonsense. I'm tired of people who don't know what they're talking about trying to talk about realignment, expansion. Man, I guess this happens in other industries, but I'm not as tuned into it as I am now hearing. People in the Big Ten footprint talk about everything that the Big Ten is going to do. If the Big Ten is going to take more teams imminently from the Pac-12 and the Big 12 and their ACC, I'm here to tell you it would have already happened. There's nowhere for these teams to go. In fact, Notre Dame, I don't think, is in any hurry to get to the Big Ten, given that they can negotiate their own TV deal with NBC. But it gives us all something to talk about, I guess, and I guess that's why people talk about it. In the end, um, I'm left eager and optimistic to get some clarity on what is happening with the Pac-12 itself. But if you're an Oregon fan, if you're a Washington fan, be careful what you wish for. Because I think there's a scenario in which Oregon or Washington could get to the Big Ten or the SEC. I just don't think it's an advantageous scenario for the Ducks or the Huskies. And I think it would leave the Pac-12 conference in shambles if it did happen. Uh, I am not being told, I am not hearing that Oregon or Washington are imminently headed anywhere. I am not being told that the Big Ten conference is expanding, although I'm not at Big Ten Media Day, admittedly so. But I am hearing others repeat and repeat information. And I'm going, where's the sourcing? Where is the uh, where is the connection? Where is the uh, analysis and the commentary? And and I'm glad you're here because I mean, look, I'm going to I'm going to say like, look, a lot of sports radio is speculation by its nature. A lot of sports in general, as we have talked about ESPN sort of fam- fanning the flames on the Kevin Durant stuff is about entertainment. It is uh, entertainment and not sports. It's not rooted in news. It's not rooted in reporting. It's entertainment. And that's what I think makes this show different. And I frankly think it's what makes my reporting and writing at johnconzano.com different. You're going to get a lot of newspapers nationally that are just going to aggregate all of the news reports, unsubstantiated or not, and put them in one place and pass them off as news. Really what they want you to do, and you know this, is they want you to click and they want you to read and they want the page view and they want to tell advertisers, hey, we got we got so many people reading us. But in the end, they haven't advanced the conversation. They haven't advanced the ball. And that's why I keep telling people, look, here's what you're going to get when you come to this radio show. And here's what you're going to get when you read me at johnconzano.com. You're going to get sourced, in-depth reporting and commentary. It's not going to be me throwing stuff against the wall. It's not going to be me guessing. It's not going to be me fanning the flames just because I know that there are a lot of people out there that are anxious. If you really want to know what's going to happen, stay tuned because John Wilner of the Bay Area News Group, San Jose Mercury News, is coming along this hour, and we will talk about everything going on at Big Ten Media Day and Kevin Warren talking and grandstanding, and we'll talk about all the news reports that are out there, what's real, what's not. 
Um, I, I, I know that the Pac-12 athletic directors that are all going to gather in Los Angeles this coming week uh, are by and large telling me that they still believe they're unified. They still believe George Klyovkov is kicking ass and that he is going to pull this thing together. They still believe that the Pac-12 will exist beyond this cycle. Um, I think there's a lot of propaganda coming out of Big, Te- Big Ten and Big 12 country in particular. Notice how quiet the SEC has been. Notice how relatively quiet the ACC has been. I think they're all kind of just sitting and waiting and going, hey, there's nothing really to talk about here. But Big Ten Media Day is stretched now in a 48-hour window and has, uh, I think, you know, I I don't think Kevin Warren helped things. And by things, I mean, I don't think he helped the state of college football by coming out yesterday and then again today and basically saying "We, we may not be done. You know, and I think it, it's great for TV. It's great for ratings. It's great to get you talked about. It's great for you know the speculation or maybe the hysteria or the hype or that that goes along with Big Ten Media Day. But it's not really good for the landscape of college athletics, and it's got a lot of people in a lot of places speculating about things that are that are frankly just a waste of time. I'm going to dive into two things in this opening segment. John Wilner will be along bottom of the hour to kind of talk about you know what he makes of Kevin Warren's comments and the grandstanding going on and I'll ask him specifically about you know the the all-conference teams in the Pac-12 I'll ask him about you know how he you know what he thinks of uh, the the remarks that were made possible expansion San Diego State UNLV Fresno State Boise State among those who have been bantered about SMU I'll throw them in there as well but I want to start with the Big 12 Conference. Okay, the Big 12's in trouble. And the Big 12 knew it was in trouble uh, when Texas and Oklahoma announced it was leaving for the SEC. That was a massive hit to the Big 12 Conference. And it made ripples nationally, but we didn't spend more than like a day or two kind of talking about what that meant for the landscape of college athletics. And then we all kind of moved on because it didn't involve us. It didn't affect the Pac-12 country. It didn't seem to be our story. It was happening over there. It's the Big 12. It was happening over there. It was the SEC. So Texas and Oklahoma going to the SEC, you know, it registered, but not to the point where there was hysteria and hand-wringing. I know that the Pac-12 at the time looked at Baylor, looked at Houston, looked at Texas Tech, Oklahoma State, and said, huh, should we merge here? Should we take some of these schools? And I think that's a fair point. I think you should always be asking those questions. You should always be exploring. You should always have growth in mind. You should always be looking for opportunities if you're the Pac-12 Conference. And I think that is one of the sins of the last 20 years of the Pac-12 Conference. I don't think they were consistently looking for opportunities because I think if they were, they would have pounced on a couple of opportunities and uh, they wouldn't be in the predicament they're in right now. That said, the Big 12's in trouble. The Big 12's wobbling. The Big 12 is turning to Cincinnati and Louisville and Central Florida and BYU and going, save us. Help us replace the divot left by Oklahoma and Texas leaving the Big 12 conference. And so, you know, they're, they have shrunken down to about 10 million television households. They're going to add those four universities that I mentioned coming up here in the, in the next cycle. And they'll get themselves to about 13 to 14 million television households as a whole and they will uh, then go look we're we're almost where we were they were at 15 million 
TV households, but they lost the brands of Oklahoma. They lost the brands of Texas. Their media rights uh, packages, their dis- distributions are woefully behind the Big Ten and the SEC and falling further behind. And they were uh, uh, scheduled uh, to to be passed or projected to be passed by the Pac-12 conference in this next round of media rights negotiations. Like the Pac-12 was looking at distributions that would reach uh, $50 million or more. They would kind of keep the Big Ten and the SEC within reach. You know, like, hey, you don't ideally want to be $20 million a year at a deficit when you're competing for the same national championships, but it, it sure beats be, be, you know, being 30 or $40 million behind. So the Pac-12 was doing a little bit of that hand-wringing, but the Big 12 was in crisis. And, and I don't blame the Big 12 fans for being anxious because when you lose Texas and Oklahoma, it's far greater. It is a far greater hit than the Pac-12 conference losing USC and UCLA. The brand of Texas, the television households, the recruiting footprint, Oklahoma, Texas, they were carrying, those were tent poles of the Big 12 Conference, and they're going, going, gone. USC and UCLA, you know, it's television households. It's a major media market. It's a gut punch, no doubt, but it wasn't like UCLA and USC were competing and winning national championships and making the playoff, and you're not losing the big, big brand that Texas and Oklahoma are, and the television ratings support that. The loss of Texas and Oklahoma to the Big 12 is greater than the loss of USC and UCLA to the Pac-12. So uh, I want to tell you that when the Big 12 and the Pac-12 started talking, and this was in the last two or three weeks where the talks really picked up, and then we all heard about a week ago, uh, hey, the Big 12 has, has backed out of these talks. Like, they've walked away. They've left the negotiating table, all this stuff. I'm here to tell you that I believe all of that is coming out of the Big 12 footprint. I believe it is all spin. I believe that the Pac-12 was probably just doing its diligence in talking to the Big 12, saying, hey, is there a merger that makes sense for us? Uh, can we line this up with ESPN and Fox in a way that you know gives us enough of a share and enough revenue to keep the Big 10 and the SEC within view of the front windshield and I believe the Pac-12 did its diligence. I believe they looked at what's there. I never for a moment, you, if you listen to the show, you didn't hear me crowing about all these models that had this big merger between the Big 12 and the Pac-12. I just didn't see it. It didn't make sense to me. It still doesn't make sense to me. There, were, there are certain properties in the Big 12 that if I, w- I would find attractive if I were the Pac-12. I'd be interested in Houston. I'd be interested maybe in Texas Tech. I'd be interested in talking to Oklahoma State. Uh, you know, Kansas is a throw-in, maybe just from a basketball standpoint, but I'm not wild about it. So it, in the end, I'm kind of I'm, I'm rubbernecking at the Big 12, but I don't want the whole Big 12. Like even BYU doesn't bring anything if you're the Pac-12 conference. You get BYU, you already had Salt Lake City because you have Utah, and and you don't want Cincinnati. And who wants to go to Central Florida? And I just don't like the makeup of a merger between these two entities, even though. A lot of people in college football were pounding the table saying this is how you stay close to the SEC and the Big Ten. I think there's just too many mouths to feed. If you take on the Big 12 Conference and you merge it with the Pac-12, I just don't see how those distributions work out. But even with the added you know, footprint geographically, I just don't see how you can split the pie that many ways and end up with more money in the end. So too many mouths to feed in a merger. So what I think happened – was I think the Big 12 realized the Pac-12 is not here to do business. 
And the Big 12, you know, a week or two ago just said, we're walking away. And the, all of that stuff, all of that nonsense, all of that reporting that is just getting thrown off the wall is literally rooted to, I think, the insecurity in the Big 12 footprint and the anxiety in the Big 12 footprint from people who are worried that that conference isn't going to matter. Now, their media rights deal is up in 2025. By then, I think the Big Ten, the SEC, and probably the Pac-12, and the ACC were all going to have moved on. The distributions will be far in excess of what the Big 12 can offer. I think that conference is in real trouble. And I think it's in real jeopardy of being carved up right now as you know, the Big Ten could look down and go, hey, what do we want that's left there? And the Pac-12 can go, what do we want? Uh, but I feel like it's a little bit like picking over a carcass. And I'm not trying to be mean to Big 12 fans, but when you lose Texas and you lose Oklahoma, you you essentially have lost the backbone of the conference. And, you know, what's left? I'm looking for a heart over here, maybe a kidney. Like, I, I just think in the end, if you are the Pac-12, there are pieces of the Big 12 that are attractive, but not by and large this whole conference. The second thing I want to get into is sort of the obnoxious sentiment coming out of the Big Ten media day in the last 24 to 36 hours. Kevin Warren's act yesterday, you know, he's doing cartwheels, and I get it. I get, like, you're pandering to your constituents. You're pandering to Fox, who's saying, hey, uh, we need to trumpet the fact that we are C to Shining C, L.A. to New York. We got Chicago, too, uh, and everything in between. But I'm left uh, feeling a little flat about what was said yesterday because I feel like while they were grandstanding and while they were trying to say, hey, What's great about college football is, you know, we, you know, we're moving forward. It's a new time. There are opportunities here. Like, that's all great, and that's all good business for the Big Ten. But if anybody in the Big Ten bothers to get off the bus for a second, the, the hype going on is like a bus blitzing through downtown. You know, jump off the bus and look around the downtown for a little bit. Ask yourself, is college football better off because of what is happening right now? I would argue uh, it's probably not, and and I think it's uh, I think the Big Ten's being honest when they're saying they may not be done, but I think they're doing a real disservice to everybody else by just throwing that out in an ambiguous way that has you know Oregon fans, Washington fans, Arizona State fans, Cal and Stanford fans all in a tizzy trying to figure out oh does this mean that the landscape is shifting again? The truth is we were all caught off guard by what happened. The Big Ten did a marvelous job in securing USC and UCLA without anybody finding out about it. Just a fantastic job, uh, covert, black ops operation. They pulled it off. But in the end, if you're just spitballing and you're Kevin Warren throwing this crap out like we may not be done, you're not helping the rest of college football glue itself back together. And I get it. He probably doesn't care about the Pac-12 conference. He probably doesn't care about the Big 12. I think there will be a reckoning that comes for the Big 10 in the end. I, do, I, do, I am skeptical that the geography of all of this is going to work out for everybody. I'll get into more of that later in the show. But in the end, I'm just going, look, if you really care, if you genuinely care about all of college football, you've just poached the, the Pac-12 conference. The Big 12's trying to pull itself together. The ACC is antsy, and they got a bunch of members who are, who are skittish and you know wondering why are we in this conference, we're falling behind, all this stuff. And then the Pac-12 is just trying to figure out, do we add members, do we stay the same? Meanwhile, you got Kevin Warren, who's supposed to be one of the guardians 
of college football as a conference commissioner of the Big Ten who isn't really serving his conference by throwing that out. Frankly, it's just a disservice to everybody else by saying, hey, we may not be done. If you're not done, didn't say so. And tell us who it is that you're interested in talking about. The truth is, I don't think Kevin Warren has any interest in adding schools imminently. I think if Oregon or Washington are going to the Big Ten or somewhere else, they're going to have to take a raw deal to get there. And so what I think the best-case scenario is, frankly, come Friday, George Klyovkov standing in front of all the media and all the world on Friday to talk about the health of the Pac-12 conference and tell us, hey, what the hell the plan is. Because I think that will go a long way toward doing what Kevin Warren did not do in the last 24 to 36 hours. Do something that's right for all of college football. While you're getting rich in the Big Ten, I get it. Uh, just don't forget that that's the goose you have your hands around the neck of. All right, leave it here. John Wilner coming up, bottom of the hour. So much more ahead. we got a great show for you. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Well, we'll have uh, big news probably Friday. George Klyovkov, Pac-12 commissioner, will join this show one-on-one on Pac-12 Media Day. So I'll ask all the questions. You got a question you want me to ask Klyovkov, tweet at me, at John Canzano BFT. I will ask him, uh, you know, let's see if he takes the high road, the low road when it comes to UCLA, USC. I will ask him and others about uh, what they think is going to happen. There's going to be a whole bunch of athletic directors there as part of Pac-12 Media Day. I will try to get some one-on-one time with some of the ADs. probably won't be on air. But I think sometimes when I talk to university presidents and athletic directors in the conference, I often learn things that are far more valuable than having like a lengthy interview. They're much more willing to talk frankly and candidly off air. Um, it's interesting as a, as a print reporter, because my background is in print, and obviously I'm writing now at johnconzano.com. You can read me every day. I wrote about Jaden Grant this morning. But uh, it's really interesting because back in the day I'd be like in the Blazer locker room or in any interview setting in my career where you are a print reporter, you're having a conversation with somebody. It is often very casual. It is often candid. It's authentic. You can float on the record and off the record within the conversation. Like you could be talking and they can go, look, don't quote me on this, use this on background, or you can say an anonymous source said this, but here's what's really going on. And they'll tell you what's really going on. Because I think the the people who are involved with the Pac-12 and other other sports entities that I've covered over the years, they really want you to know, they want the public to know what is actually happening, not the crap that they see reported. And I think it's really interesting sometimes when I know something to be true, but I can't yet report it because I don't have it sourced. But I know it's true because I trust my sources. And at that point, I will see conflicting information out there, and I'll kind of shake my head going, people are just guessing. You know, what we need and what you should rely on is in-depth sourced reporting. And you know the difference between someone spitballing and somebody who is talking to actual sources within the entities that you're that you're trying to get to like you don't see me trying to talk about what's going on in you know conference usa i don't know i'm not sourced there i barely know one coach in the conference so uh, you know i'm not here to try to talk like i'm an expert on that 
But I can tell you that the Pac-12 come Friday, um, I don't know if George Klyovkov is going to come out and share his master plan. I don't know if he's going to be combative or he's going to, you know, is he going to bring a sledgehammer or a scalpel? I'm going to bet he brings a scalpel. But I, I do know that what they need on Friday is they need a win. And they haven't had a win in a while. And they're going to get an opportunity to get a win. And they're going to be, you know, in downtown Los Angeles. And Klyovkov's going to take the stage at 8 o'clock in the morning. And by about 8.30, you're going to be getting sound bites. And you're going to be getting what he's saying. And then later in the day on this show, which begins at 3 p.m., you're going to hear from Chip Kelly, UCLA coach. You're going to hear from Dan Lanning, Oregon's coach. You're going to hear from Jonathan Smith. He's going to, these are one-on-one interviews. Uh, and, but we're going to get Klyovkov one-on-one. And I think that's going to be a fantastic interview and a great opportunity, I think, because I have some rapport with him. I think there's some trust there. I think we're, I can push him a little harder one-on-one then you will see him pushed in a group setting. So I hope you tune in to Friday's show because I think it will be unlike anything that is out there, and I think it will be fun, a lot of fun. John Wilner, uh, Bay Area News Group, San Jose Mercury News, friend of this show. He's coming up next. I'm going to ask Wilner what he made of the Pac-12 all-conference teams, plus possible expansion candidates for the Pac-12. Not just spitballing, but who are the real players? We're going to dive deep on four of them coming up. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. John Wilner is the guru of the Pac 12 conference. That's what I call him. That's what you should call him. You should be following him at Wilner Hotline on Twitter. You should be reading him. He's all over the Pac 12 footprint. And he's joining us now. I, I want to talk a little bit, John, about uh, Kevin Warren's comments yesterday, Big Ten Media Day. It's important for all of us in business to recognize that we're in a time of change. And I think there's two types of people in the world, that they look at change as it's a problem or they look at change as an opportunity. And I'm one of those individuals that when change occurs, I get excited about it, that it, that it really is an opportunity for us to do a lot of things that people have thought about but maybe have been a little bit reticent to do. And so I'm embracing change. I'm going to be very aggressive. Uh, I've been that way my entire career. And, uh, and I just want to make sure we build an environment because our student athletes and our fans and, and, and our universities deserve that. There was some grandstanding going on. Uh, he was taking a victory lap, maybe justifiably so. But what were your takeaways as you heard him sort of speaking yesterday? The whole thing, yes, he, he was grandstanding, you know, taking a victory lap. And the guy, two years ago, the guy got hammered for how he handled the Big Ten situation with COVID, right? Now he's taking his victory lap. But, it, you know, it's so Shakespearean, right? I mean, a year ago, he and... Uh, the Big Ten, the ACC, and the Pac-12 have formed this alliance, and now here we are, and Warren has taken the knife to the heart of the Pac-12. He made some comments where, you know, he was asked, like, you know, is this healthy for college athletics? And he sort of said that, look, if you're in a position to lose teams, I'm paraphrasing here, if you're in a position to lose teams, then you have bigger problems than just, uh, you know, if you know more issues than members leaving. There are deeper issues. What is he talking about? Is he is he throwing shade specifically at the Pac-12, or he's just kind of defending what he did? 
I think he's uh, doing a little bit of both, and I think he's showing some shade of Pac-12 presidents, to be honest with you. It's like, you know, we've known for years they haven't been focused enough, they haven't invested enough in football, and and now, you know, they're paying the price, and they, and they endorsed misguided media strategies by the former commissioner, and so now they're paying the price for the bad leadership at the top. I mean, he, it's a very Machiavellian uh, approach, but he's also spent – what, 20, 25 years in the NFL where, you know, it's professional and it's cutthroat and uh, it, you don't have, it's not the old college try. It's, it's, it's uh, you know, there's winners and losers, and he's taken that view here to the conference realignment situation. The Pac-12's problems, we could probably pinpoint that revenue is at the heart of it, but what else is going on? You mentioned sort of like the presidents and chancellors in their and their views over the last decade maybe have been a little more scattered than the SEC or the Big Ten when it comes to football. But it, what else, what other issues do you see beyond media rights money for the Pac-12? Well, certainly there are some secular issues that it doesn't have a whole lot of control over, right? And those have accelerated in recent years with high school football participation, especially in California, dropping much quicker than it has dropped in, say, Texas or Georgia, Florida, Ohio, you know, the feeder states for the other leagues. I think that's a that's a huge issue, right? I mean, there's not as many 300-pound defensive tackles growing up in the Pac-12 as there are in other places. So to some extent, the issues are beyond the Pac-12's immediate control, but I think that you know, certainly the some strategy issues, the, you know, the instant replay affair, uh, you know, just all have served to devalue the Pac-12's brand. The former commissioner's focus on Olympic sports, which was uh, enabled by the president and chancellors, to, you know, I think devalued football a little bit and men's basketball. So all those things combined with some underperformance on the field. I mean, you can't you can't ignore the fact that USC has been mediocre for a decade. All of it is kind of coming home to roost. They don't have to add members. They don't have to expand. They could be the Pac-10 moving forward. But there are some interesting properties out there. Uh, from a strategy standpoint, if we can uh, pick through them a little bit, San Diego State is interesting to me. you got a million, 1.1 million households in that region, television-wise. It helps get you back into Southern California. Are you thumbs up, thumbs down, or lukewarm on San Diego State as a candidate? I think San Diego State is a must-have. I mean, it is an absolute no-brainer, and if they don't do that, they're you know, they're digging a much deeper hole, right? Assume, if we assume that they are going to stick together, at least for the short term, uh, I don't know how they cannot invite San Diego State, right? They got a new, they got a new stadium coming online this fall. They can expand to 55,000 if needed because they built it to house an NFL team if necessary. So they got a new stadium. You know, their academic profile is, is uh, better than a few of the schools in the Pac-12. One point, what did you say, 2 million homes, Twenty. it's the number 27 media market in the country. It has produced to Seau, Alex Smith, Reggie Bush, Marcus Allen. I mean, there's obviously, it's a very important recruiting round, San Diego County specifically, but also San Diego is the same distance from modern-day high school as Moonbeam is from Chicago. In other words, Pac-12 would have a, pres- a recruiting presence in Southern California in the L.A. Basin if it's got a campus in San Diego. And I I just think they're a must-have. 
John Wilner with us, Bay Area News Group, San Jose Mercury News. Wilner, uh, let's pick, let's pick through a couple of other candidates. Uh, Boise State, only five hundred seventeen thousand TV households in Idaho. Is is it a non-starter, or do you consider them? I don't think. I mean, they, to me, they're a plan. They're not even Plan B for the Pac-12. They're probably Plan C, to be honest with you. Not, you know. Uh, everything from the academic profile to the media rights, uh, I just don't see there being much interest unless we're talking about a Pac-12 that is gutted and reforming with the Mountain West in some kind of merger. That's the only way. There's also some talk about Fresno State. I kind of put them in the same category, although you'd be in Central California uh, there, you know, it starts to feel a little bit too much like the whack or the Mountain West when you start talking about all these schools. But is Fresno State in this thing? I think they're probably in as Plan B. You know, and, and part of the reason for that is, um, you know, if you include Fresno, and I don't know specifically how this would work. You know how Comcast and Dish and everybody else at ESPN would value Fresno State from a media rights standpoint. But if Fresno is included in the Sacramento media market, that's the 20th biggest media market in the country. It's bigger than Portland. It's bigger than Salt Lake and San Diego. So that is certainly something that Pac-12 needs to look at is where Fresno would stand on the media valuation front. And and I do think if they expand, Fresno would probably be right. You know, on, on the second tier for sure. UNLV, cross my radar. The more I think about them, initially I waved it off, but the more I think about UNLV, Vegas is an emerging, growing market. I know they're, they're a top 40 TV market, but I think they've got some potential to move towards 2025 in the next decade. You also have Allegiant Stadium. You've got an NFL park there. you got Klyovkov's relationships. Is UNLV... Uh, wrong to uh, get, you know, like UNLV fans reaching out to me, what few there are, are reaching out to me saying, hey, are we in this thing? Like, is that a pipe dream, or do you think there's something to that? I, you know, I'm not sure about UNLV. Uh, and part of the reason, I think that you're right about all those factors, but then you look at the football program, right? I mean, it's like Kansas football. I mean, it's terrible. So that would be the biggest uh, issue there, you know, San Diego State, they 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 come in being very competitive, right? I mean, they beat Pac-12 teams regularly, and plus they got a top 25 basketball program. To me, the issue with UNLV would be whether the Pac-12 was willing to kind of uh, swallow hard and accept the competitive piece, which the football program is just not any good. Yeah, I keep wondering if they would take UNLV but tell them, look, you're not going to get media rights money or not get a full share for five years, and maybe that's how you justify it, and you're you're uh, you're taking that as a speculative bet. But I don't know if you can do that. It starts to feel a little bit too much Mountain Westy to me uh, uh, when yep. you, when we're talking about all these teams. Is there a brand danger for the Pac-12 in that sense? Oh, I think I think that there's a big brand danger, and the presidents are very aware of that. I think that if you know, they're, other than San Diego State, I think they need to look east. I think they need to look into Texas, right? I mean, SMU is not in the Big 12. It's in the American and probably would be thrilled to get an invitation. Uh, its academic profile is good. It, it gives you a chance to plant your flag in Dallas, uh, which helps on a bunch of fronts, including recruiting. So, I mean, I would, you know, I would say, San Diego State and SMU might be atop their list. And this, 
you know, all of this presumes that they're not going to get super aggressive and try to go after some Big 12 schools. And I don't think you can – there's probably a 1% chance of that, uh, 2% chance, but you can't totally discount it. I mean, Houston is would be a great addition. I thought Houston would be a good addition a year ago, uh, given the recruiting and the media market and the fact it's a competitive program. Maybe they go try to get Houston before they even Houston even joins the Big Twelve. I, yeah, I think that's a that's a possibility. Would be good strategy there. I the, the talks with the Big Twelve. It got all those Big Twelve fans mad at you, mad at me. They're all riled up. It's like a hornet's nest right now with the Big Twelve fans trying to say, "Hey, we still matter." Uh, but I felt like the talks between the Pac-12 and the Big 12 were probably just obligatory. Hey, let's check that box. Let's explore what's there. I never really expected anything to come from it, and yet the narrative spinning out of it was like the Big 12 dumped the Pac-12. I didn't see it that way. How did you see it? I'm not sure how to see it because a lot of the media narrative has come from the Big 12 via leaks, and I'm you know the Pac-12 has been much more tight-lipped than the Big 12 has, and so you always have to be wary uh, when one narrative continues to come from a certain region, right? Um, so I don't know exactly what happened there. I, I certainly wouldn't uh, discount the possibility that a bunch of Pac-12 schools end up in the in the Big 12. And I also don't, don't think that whatever they talked about in terms of a merger, they could come back to that in a couple of months. You know, when both when both conferences get a, a better view of what the media rights landscape is going to be, uh, I don't think it's dead completely i think it's in you know it's in a medically induced coma uh but it could could resurface i want to talk a little bit uh, before i cut you loose about the preseason all pac 12 conference football teams they came out uh yesterday they do this every year in front of media day but caleb williams at quarterback for usc is the first team offensive quarterback cam rising at utah is your second team um you know what jumped out at you as you saw the list of uh, all these players and specialists uh, on offense and defense? I mean, the first thing is there's a lot of USC guys. Uh, but the second thing is transfers. I mean, that if you think about it, right, both, there's first and second team. Both quarterbacks are transfers. Hmm. Uh, three of the four tailbacks are transfers. Uh, the starting receivers, both at SC, are both transfers. You know, that is partly the way of the world right now in college football, but it also tells you something about Pac-12 recruiting, uh, I think. You know, that was that was the thing that jumped out to me. The other, the other thing is that I, I do think it's going to be very – there's going to be some very good defenses in the conference th- this coming year. That, to me, that is the, – the strength of the league tilts to the defensive side, especially uh, Oregon, Washington, Utah. Th- those schools should be really good defensively. When you, when you think about how many players – I think it's 10 USC players on the first team, second teams, and specialists. Uh, when you think about that, if – Lincoln Riley comes in. Let's say he let's say he underachieves a little bit. Let's say he wins seven or eight games. Is the narrative going to be, you know, he really underachieved? It, it's a slower build, or are we going to say they were overhyped? Oh boy, uh, I think it'll be mostly that he underachieved, just because he's become such a flashpoint for fans and media, uh, for better or worse, right? Uh, I think that uh, nine wins is probably eight and a half, nine wins is what I would bet on, right? Uh, if you're setting a line in Vegas, I don't think that they are good enough to be, you know, 11 and 1, 
twelve and zero going into the Pac twelve championship game. I, I just I don't I just don't see it on defense on their uh, the defensive side. I don't think they're quite good enough. So a lot of this is is just hype. Yeah, I can't get the uh, image of Oregon State pushing them around the Coliseum out of my mind from last year. Yeah. They just pile drove them. All right, Wilner, you're going to join us tomorrow. I appreciate you doing that. We. We may have a little announcement on tomorrow's show as well, as you and I have been working on something that uh, the insiders on this show, the listeners of this show, are, are going to get special insight with. But I appreciate you joining us, and we'll check in with you tomorrow about Pac-12 Media Day coming up on Friday. Tomorrow I'm going to ask you about George Klyovkov specifically. I know you wrote this on Wednesday, but I, what is he going to say? How is he going to position the conference? We'll deal with all that. John Wilner, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Leave it right here. Coming up, uh, more ahead. Punch it audio and more. Leave it here. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Still hot out there. You feel like you're on the face of the sun still? Steven, you, you, uh, you spend any time in the world today? Uh, you know, I did. We uh, we went to the park today because I got got in a little later to the studio today, so I went to the park with the family. Uh, luckily, it was a shaded park, so I feel good about that. <laughs> okay, this morning, this is funny. This morning, uh, I I had told, because I'm going to be out, you know, I'm going to be out doing Pac-12 Media Day, and so I always like to try to spend some time with the kids before I go because then when I come back, they're like, who are you? Um, so I uh, I decided that today I was going to take – the two little ones to play miniature golf because right who's playing miniature golf on a wednesday morning right exactly, nobody yeah nobody course is empty we have the whole course to ourselves. could have played 36 <laughs> no uh, but anna came along and uh this is more her world like she's dealing with this stuff on a daily basis and the two younger daughters are six and eight and they're the best of friends and they're also as you know like cats and dogs like when they're not getting along so we played about four holes before they went off the rails. We were literally ready to bag it up because they were arguing. They were trash-talking each other. We don't go for that. We, uh, they were uh, just being crummy to each other. And uh, in the end, I was like, you're ruining, you're ruining this beautiful round of miniature golf. But it was already warm. It was like 1030 in the morning, and I was already going, this is going to be blistering today. And it was that way yesterday. Do you think, like, how long have you lived here? I've lived here my whole life, so uh, 35 years. Okay. I I didn't grow up here, and, and I grew up in a warmer part of California. Like, it, it was not unusual to see 90s push into 100, and not just for, like, a week. We get, like, a bad week here, like, bad four days, and everybody freaks out. And I've always laughed at that, but now I'm one of those people. Like, I think I've been, you know, my I have been adjusted. I'm climatized or whatever it is. I don't know if Sean feels the same way either, or Judah, or whoever else is uh, around the back of the studio over there. But it, it just feels like I'm I've turned into a wimp. <laughs> yeah, Sean is here as well. Uh, yeah, I'm like the opposite. I feel like now I can't wait to, for it to be sunny and hot. Like I don't mind the heat. I know that like yesterday I went, uh, we had some golf balls at the driving range, and I was just soaked in sweat. Uh, and it was like 9:30 in the morning, so that wasn't good. But I mean, I I look and I love for the heat now. Like I just I don't want to be in the rain anymore. We like me and my wife like to go to Vegas because it's even extra hot there. Like mm. I'm all about the heat now, John. I don't know if that I don't know what that means about me, but maybe I'm ready know. to retire already. I don't know. I I don't know. I I feel like I'm melting out there. But the kids rallied. They got through about 
you know, we got to about the 14th hole, and I literally sat him down. Anna was ready to like bag it. She's like, you know what? They don't deserve to be out here. And I, uh, I said to the two girls, I said, listen, we're out here. We're having fun. We're playing miniature golf. Nobody's hit. A, nobody's lost a ball yet. Oh wow! Like, like let's have let's have a good time. Let's finish this. And they did. They finished. Uh, I was proud of them for finishing strong. Multiple now, Anna, questions. Yeah, Sorry. Ahead. What's your course yeah. and who ended up winning? Um, I don't even know the name of the course that we played, and we did not keep score because uh, we, uh, you know, it would have been a nightmare to keep score because you got a six-year-old out there yeah. and an eight-year-old. By the way, the six-year-old made a hole in one. Hey, she was the only one that made one. But the course was over in Clackamas, and I, I blanking on the name of the course. Uh, Eagles Landing. Probably, I don't know. I just get in the car and I'm I'm there. Yeah. So I'm not <laughs> looking around. I'm woefully unaware of everything that except sports. So uh, I think you're right. I think it was Eagles Landing. And shout out to the people there. But I, uh, it was great because there was nobody out there. And then you know what I noticed? I looked over at the real golf course that was that's there. It's kind of like a par three course that's around there, and it was elderly people, or should I just say older people? Older people, and it was young guys. Like, it was, like, 20-year-old guys and old people. Like, that's all that's out there on the course during the day. Like, the rest of us are working. working. Exactly. That's damn right. Well, well, you went out to the driving range yesterday, and like I said, it was, like, 9.30, 9 o'clock. There was, a uh, like, a senior group that was going on. At the driving range, we tried to golf right next to him and hit it, you know, underneath the cover, not have to go in the sun. And they said, "Well, you're not uh, old enough. You got to go out there in the sun and hit and hit off those." So maybe that's a thing. I don't know. All right. So speaking of old people, something happened yesterday that I got to talk about. I got to get this off my chest. We decided yesterday after the show that we were going to go out to dinner. All three daughters were around. It was kind of a unusual circumstance, and we said, "Let's go. Let's go out to eat." So we decided to go out. We get to this restaurant, and everybody had the same idea. There was an hour wait, okay? And But but it was so hot outside. At least it was cool inside. So we said, hey, you know what? We're going to sit and wait. And we, uh, we were sitting inside just by the hostess stand of this restaurant. Casual place, but family, you know, you got you to gotta wait. You wait, and, you know, you're seated. And, it, you know, it's a decent restaurant, but not super nice. But, it, you know, it looked to me like a lot of people were coming in off a golf course, playing like or everybody just had that red faced look because it was so hot outside this one older guy came in and he was immediately upset because he said my name is Jim or whatever and I have a reservation I didn't even know you could do that he said I have a reservation at at like 6:30 and the hostess who's like an 18 year old kid is looking for his name and can't immediately find it like she's looking but he's really upset, and he starts to say to her, I can't believe you don't have it. I called you at 3.15. I made this reservation. Like, he was really harsh with her. I thought he was kidding. I thought, I thought he was joking. That's how harsh he was with her. Like, his tone did not fit the moment. And she was still looking for his name, and she eventually found it. And she said, oh, here you are. And he then looked at her and said, oh, good. Like, he was just kind of crappy to her. And, uh, you know, he he made a couple other harsh remarks to her, and she, her manager came over, and and you could tell like the manager really good, well managed place because you could tell the manager recognized that there was a problem before there was a problem, and the manager came over and said I'll see you to your table, and took the guy away. I was really in that moment upset at the guy because he was so rude to her, 
But I didn't say anything. And my wife later told me the same thing. She said, he was so rude, I wanted to say, hey, that's not how you talk to people. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. Like, you know, scold him in that moment. And he's about an 80-year-old guy, okay? So my daughter, my oldest daughter, who works in a restaurant, okay, she didn't sit quietly. She said to him, hey, not okay. Don't, you don't talk to people like that. Which the hostess then turned to her and said, thank you for having my back. These people, they come in here, they just talk to me like I'm garbage, and you know nobody ever does that. I was really proud of my kid, but I was fuming still, and I was mad at myself. Have you ever been in these situations where you're mad at yourself for not speaking up? Well, definitely. Do you think, John, if you were to say something that the guy would have said something back to you? Because I understand maybe, you know, coming from your daughter who's just younger, like he's maybe not going to say anything back to her. But if it was, you know, an older dad gentleman like yourself, you know, maybe he comes back with you and fires back and says, you know, mind your business and start something bigger. Because I'm with you. You know, he's definitely in the wrong and you can't treat people that way. It's horrible. Yeah, I just, yeah. I, I would just be afraid that he would say something back to me. But I know, like, my youngest would probably say something to him just because yep. my youngest, you know, he, he has no filter. He just says what's on his <laughs> right, mind. Right, right. I was proud of her because we always talk about being a bystander versus being an upstander. And I said, you know, that was cool. And my wife said, you were an upstander. She said, I wanted to say, you know, my wife said, I wanted to say something, but I didn't. Well, I was fuming, right? Like internally, I was, I was mad at myself for not speaking up. I was proud of my kid for speaking up. The guy kind of blew her off and went to his table. And, you know, four, he and three buddies kind of sat there and ate. And I could see him across the restaurant. Well, I couldn't help myself. I got up at one point. And I walked over to his table and I said to him, I said, hey, I said, I saw what you said to the hostess. I said, you were out of line. And by the way, I later found out he was the same way to the server. He did the same thing to her. He just mm -hmm. berated her, was horrible to her. Uh, and I told him, I said, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. And I said, you're lucky you're not younger. I, I said, because somebody, somebody's going to kick your ass. And he didn't say anything. He just looked at me, looked right through me, went away. I came back to the table. My daughter goes, what did you say to him? And I told her, and she goes, Dad, I think you went a little too far because <laughs> I, I was mad. But it's true, though. If he was younger, those are fighting words. Like, you can, you know, I've seen, less, I've seen fights for less than that. I just, I just felt like I was really proud of her. I was disappointed with myself for not speaking up for the hostess. And by the way, the hostess, hostess like, fist bumped us on the way out. She was like, thank you for having my back. And an 80-year-old should know better. He should. Right? Like, what are you doing? Get a hold of yourself. You're hot. It's hot outside. I get it. You got your table. You got your food. I told him that. I said, everything okay with your meal? And he said, yeah. And I said, okay. Then lighten up. Don't treat people like garbage. He thought you were a manager. There, there you go. Hour number two is coming up. You got the bald-faced truth. We're going to start it with Punch It Audio. Why don't you leave it right here? B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. Look, I'm not perfect. I'm not. I probably could have done better in that scenario that I just talked about last hour. First of all, I could have spoken up when I felt like he, the guy was being offensive to the hostess in the restaurant. And if you're just tuning in, we went to dinner last night and some 80-plus-year-old guy who was having a bad day walked in and just was a jerk to the hostess. Just a jerk. Just talked down to her, berated her. And he didn't even give her a chance to say, hey, your table's ready. Table was ready. But he was almost anticipating that 
it was going to go sideways, so he was just taking it out on her. Like, I don't know what happened to that guy all day long, but it probably wasn't good. But here's something, you know, I felt kind of good. Like, I could tell my my daughter, because I was harsh with the guy after he got up, because I had, you know, Sean, Stephen, like, I had sat there for, like, 45 minutes eating, and we were having a nice dinner, and we were all talking and whatever. But the whole time, I was looking over across the restaurant going, if that guy steps up or uses the restroom, I may go Charles Bronson on him in the restroom. Like, I, you know what I mean? I just, like, he... I was waiting for him to get up, and so when we went to leave and he was standing, he got up from his table, he was standing, and I just, I intercepted him in that moment, and he was taken aback because I think he was used to bullying the hostess who was like a 16, 17, 18-year-old girl, and he was used to bullying his server who looked like she was like 18, and the guy was a jerk to both of them. And I don't know what happened to him that day. Like, I've tried to remind myself, like, we don't know what's going on in people's lives. We don't know, did he get diagnosed with something? Did he, you know, did he just get rear-ended outside? Did he, you know, we don't know. Did he get bad news? Did he get fired? I don't know. But there was no excuse, really, for how he treated her. And I, <laughs> my daughter was telling the other two siblings, when you see something like that, she said, two wrongs don't make a right. She said, you want to correct him. But you don't want to be equally abusive. And I mumbled to myself, I said, I think I crossed the line with equally abusive. Because I told him, I said, I said you got to be ashamed of yourself. You're old, you're old enough to know better. And you know what? You're lucky you're, you're so old that, you know, I said, someone's going to kick your ass uh, for you talking to people that way. And he kind of muttered and looked right through me. He didn't care. But have you ever encountered uh, either yourself uh, having someone be rude to you in a in a employee setting like that or have you ever witnessed it and you know we all see those 2020 shows like John Cagnoni's what would you do like would you you know would you step in and intercede like I kind of like I talked about that after he walked away I said I expected 2020 to come through the door and be like why didn't you speak up like why why did your daughter speak up and not you because it was one of those moments like it was happening and I was like is he kidding like he's way mad about this and his table was ready like there was no problem but he he was intentionally inflammatory. Have you ever been in a situation like that? I want to hear from you. 503-417-7575. You tell me. And if it was me in that situation, I would hope someone would call me out. Like, I had a, I had a situation the other day. We were, at, we were eating breakfast somewhere, and, and the, uh, the, the server never brought my food. And I told the guy, I said, hey, can you go back in the kitchen and check and see if the food's there? He says, oh, my gosh, I'm sorry. He went back into the kitchen. And he came out and he said, someone else took your order. I thought it was out on the table. I'll get you one. And I said, don't worry about it. And I think he was expecting that I was going to be all upset about it. I really wasn't, like, because I was picking off, like, my daughter's plates as I was waiting. And But I was like, uh, the bigger thing for me was I just didn't want to pay for it. So have you ever been in a situation like that? I have, yeah. Um, with my second job right now, I work in customer service for – uh, an organization that does youth sports camps. And just a couple weeks ago, I mean, I'm always fielding uh, phone calls and emails, but uh, it, ironically enough, like it came from an older person and we uh, we ended up, you know, canceling a camp. And that camp, uh, we didn't, unfortunately, didn't email the person about the fact that it was canceled. So it was a bad mistake on, on our part. But this person calls me and just pretty much starts grilling me personally about the fact that they showed up to a camp, that the camp actually wasn't running. And she proceeded to say 
This is a sham organization. You guys are stealing money from people. We reported you to the newspaper, and I was like, whoa, like you are just grilling me for this, and you're grilling the organization, and this is uh, this is not true at all. You're taking this way too far. And then I kind of explained the mistake, and I said, you know, like we're going to make this right. And then, you know, and she also realized my role in this, which was little, and she, she kind of quieted down from there. But it was an older person as well. Yeah, I think anybody that's worked in customer service, like you just saying there, Sean, has dealt with this. I mean, I worked at Costco, and a lot of times uh, people that shop at Costco feel like they are better than the workers there because they pay to have their membership. And so they feel like they can talk down to, you know, the people that are stocking uh, stocking the food or pushing the carts or boxing the groceries. And so I've had numerous people, you know, give me a little bit of attitude while, you know, I'm on the floor, like, trying to help them out and... Uh, you know, as a worker, like, you can't say anything because that's just against your, you know, you're going to probably get in trouble for that, and you're going to get written up uh, for that. I've gotten in trouble for that, too, as I've said something back, and then the, com- uh, the customer complained and wrote a complaint about me, and then, you know, my managers talked to me and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I mean, we've all been in that situation. I just, I can't imagine ever being so mad and so rude to somebody about that over something so small, right? Like, it's just, it's it's your food. They're trying their best, obviously. Uh, you know, we went and I got some food on the way home from work. And it took a lot. It said it was done, and it took like 20 minutes after you know after I got there. But there was one person working the desk, one person in the kitchen. So it's like I can't be mad. I can't be frustrated. Like this is they're working their hardest. They're hustling around. Like these people got to calm down a little bit. Just live life. Yeah, I I think sometimes. And look, we're all we all have bad moments. Like you know, I I have bad moments too. Like even in the scenario I was talking about where I didn't get my food, I was cranky because I didn't get my food, but. I also have worked in restaurants, and anybody who's worked there, and I told the guy on the way out, I pulled him aside as I was walking out. I said, look, it, it's not your fault. But I told him, I said, look, here, here's what you could have done that would have been better. I said, just tell me, hey, sorry you didn't get your food. I'll do my best. He, he was, I think, anticipating that I was going to be really upset with him, and so he was trying to scramble around like, and get, bring me food and whatever. And I was like, dude, it's okay. I'm good. Just take it off the bill. I'm good. I wasn't mad at him because we've all been in that situation. If you have worked retail, if you have worked in a restaurant, you're very forgiving. Uh, and you know, you know that the people in there are doing their best, and you know you don't know what is going on in their lives either. And so I just think it's a really good – I guess public service announcement. Um, I think it's easy to take it personally when you get bad service, but try to remember that maybe, like, especially 80-year-old guy who's coming through the door on a hot day, maybe uh, you know he's worried about being late. I don't know. He was in traffic. I don't know what's going on in his life, but maybe try to remember that 16, 17-year-old kid who is working there. Um, was not put on this planet to be, you know, your concierge to the world. Um, you know, she's doing the best she could. I watched what she was dealing with because we sat there for like 45 minutes. Like, she was fantastic at her job, and she was seating people. She was taking names and numbers. She was – everybody who came through the door was disappointed because she was saying, hey, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be a 45-minute uh, to an hour wait. And everybody was getting that news, and it was very interesting to me to see – the different reactions from people, even to that news, because it's disappointing. You're coming through, and you're just hoping, like, you're hungry. You're coming into a restaurant. Of course you want there to be a table available for you, but there there was no table available. And it was like one guy came in, and she said, you know, it's 45 minutes to an hour, and he does this thing where he looks around the restaurant like she's lying to him. Like, you know, and, and there were, granted, there were some open tables, but anybody, again, who has worked in a restaurant understands sometimes 
when there's open tables and there's a wait, it means you don't have the staffing. And so another guy came in, and, and she says 45 minutes to an hour, and he's like, oh. and then he just goes out the door. And I'm like, it ain't her fault that the, there's no table available to you, buddy. And, you know, when we came through, of course, we want to get the kids fed. We want to get them home and get them to bed on time. But I think we got a pretty good experience in that moment of watching 80-year-old guy kind of lose his marbles and, and maybe letting our kids see, like, you know, their older sister stepping up and standing up for somebody. So I was kind of proud of her in that situation. But I want to hear from some of you. Let's go to the phone lines. Let's go to Eugene, Fox Sports Eugene. Rob is listening in Eugene. Go ahead, Rob. Thanks, John. Uh, this one, it was at a fast food restaurant, and it was something that when it happened, I thought I was in uh, Fast Times at Richmond. If you've seen the film and saw the episode at the counter, it was somewhat uh, familiar with that. The gentleman, and I use that term loosely, uh, was trying to get a refund, and the person handling the uh, cash register said couldn't do it without the manager. And so he got more belligerent and more aggressive and louder. And after about, you know, a minute, I stepped in and I said, hey, she doesn't get paid enough to deal with your crap. And I wasn't expecting, you know, any recognition or any, you know, response per se, but, like, everybody in line just, like, started clapping. <laughs> and it just blew me away. I love that. Yeah, it's interesting when you see, like, the crowdsourcing going on and everybody sort of understands, like, you know, it, <laughs> it's one person. Uh, that can you know change the mood in a restaurant or a fast food place. Bob's in Tiger. Go ahead, Bob. Hi. This I'm heading indoors right now to my favorite place because I received poor service and I haven't bought what I'm intending to buy because when I said I'm you know right now I'm still looking I. Um, I need to know more information. He goes, you're going to get the best price here, this, that, and he walked off on me. Hmm. That was an employee. Yes. Yeah, that would irritate me. And so I am um, trying to figure out, I'm not going in there blowing my top. I'm not going to, I don't swear. Somehow... I'm going to say something, I, but I yeah. have no idea what. But it's um, This is happening in real time. Yeah, real time. I'm right. sitting in my car, and as soon as I get off, I'm walking in. Why don't you walk back in there? You know what I've done in a situation like that? If I've gone back to the employee and go, look, I don't know what's going on in your day-to-day, -day, but we, you know, I had a negative experience with you, and I want to give you some advice. And, you know, just tell them, like, hey, you're a customer trying to make an uh, informed decision, and you let, you want to shop here, and you want to support this place, but, you know, we don't know what's going on. Maybe that person got called in for work. I don't know, Bob. I love that you called in, though. What are you going to do? You're going to walk back in there? Well, this happened two days ago, mm. and I'm and so now I'm there, and you, I'm, I was on my way from the mall to the place, and it's my favorite place in the whole world. And and then you got, you started talking about exactly what I'm dealing with. And so, <laughs> Isn't it funny how that works? So, yeah. So I go, hey, he's going to tell me what to say. But right. I, I generally do not 
blow my top swear I try to be very nice about it but it's um, I'm disappointed yeah. Yeah, there you go. I think that's the best thing to do is just walk in and tell them, hey, I was disappointed with my experience here the other day. This is my favorite place. I think everything that you're saying right now is rational and, and reasonable. And I think, you know, I, I, I applaud you for giving them a second chance because I think one of the things, Bob, in this pandemic that we've all figured out is there's a shortage of staffing that is going on. And it is affecting, there is a trickle-down effect. I think we're getting people who maybe aren't as trained who are working some jobs I think you've got restaurants and retail stores in particular that have been really stretched thin, and you may have just been dealing with you know somebody who's not used to working in a retail situation. And I, you know, I kind of applaud the patience you're having and the fact that you're willing to call into a radio show and share it. So thank you. You're welcome. I enjoy listening to your show. You got to call back and let us know how it goes. Okay. Do that. Good. Good luck in there. Thank you. All right, I gotta know what his favorite place is too. By the way, what do you think his favorite place is? Ooh, that's a tough choice. And that, but that is a problem because if it is your favorite place, like you don't want to give it up. <laughs> yes, you know? I know. And so I it's know. like you have a bad experience. It's it's like the thing where uh, your parents say they're not mad; they're just disappointed. Did he say it was a store or a restaurant? I got the impression it was a store. Okay, because my favorite looked... place is in Tiger, and it's a restaurant. <laughs> so <laughs> I just wondered. Uh, I didn't want him to name names because I, I want to be fair to the uh, restaurants. I don't like it when, you know, your experience, my experience, sure. I mean, you you got to speak for yourself. But there have been places where I go in and I go never again. I'll never go back again. Oh, yeah. And then what do I do? I probably go back a couple years later and I go, you know what, maybe that was me. You know, I, I like that he just called in. And how many times does this show seem to hit the sweet spot like that? We're talking and somebody will be like, you know what, this is happening right now. I'm going <laughs> He just needed the pregame talk from John Canzano. I mean, I who knew? He was like, I'm going to tell him what to do. I don't know what to do, but I should talk to my my 19-year-old who knew exactly what to say when that guy was being a jackass. Leave it here. you got the bald-faced truth statewide. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Well, now I'm uh, waiting on pins and needles for Bob to come out of that store in Tigard and give us the skinny on what happened. Anna's popped into the studio, and I can't wait for Bob to call back. I hope he does. I want to need a full report. I want to know what his favorite store was, but I'm afraid to ask. Well, the longer <laughs> it goes, who knows what's happening? <laughs> I know. What if it's like some dispensary? You know, and Bob's in there going, this is my favorite place. We're not here to you judge. Know? We're not no, here to judge. I'm not judging. <laughs> you know, pretty cool. Anna, you've worked retail jobs. Oh, Come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have, and it's uh, I've more so done, like, the restaurant thing, not as much retail, because I don't think yeah. – retail is a whole nother level. Anybody that's worked in a department store or a boutique and has to deal with people like that, uh, mad respect – uh, but yeah, I've done restaurant work. And so it's like whenever we see a situation like that where a server is being treated poorly or a hostess, it's like anybody who's been a server or has a reasonable, like, you know, state of mind understands that that's just some like high school kid, maybe college kid, right? you know, just trying to do their best and have a little understanding. Do you think it that I wondered if I was projecting? Because I got mad at, at how that dude was talking to the hostess in the restaurant. And, you know, 
we've got a teenager who works in a restaurant. Yeah. I wondered for a minute if the reason I was so bothered was I was going, that's somebody's daughter. Yeah, probably. Probably. You know? But, I, I mean, you've been a server, too. And so I think we, we look at it from yeah. that perspective more And so. we've been in situations. You and I went to uh, uh, a Valentine's Day dinner one time that was a disaster. Remember that? <laughs> yes. We go into this place, Amadeus Manor. Okay? Uh-huh. It's closed now. Yeah. Okay? Good. It needed to be closed. <laughs> it, was, it wasn't doing well. And we went into this place. And it was like an old castle for anybody who's ever been there. What area is that in? Is Milwaukee. That Milwaukee. Okay. Yeah. So we decided to try this place because it kind of looked like it was out of like a 1970s movie. Okay. Yeah. But it it was a you know Amadeus Manor for people to know it. Stephen, do you know it? Do you know the place? I don't know it. I was trying okay. to think of what you mean. Castle in Milwaukee. I don't know, but I it, do live in Milwaukee. Yeah. <laughs> it it uh it basically it was one of these things where I didn't do a good job planning for that Valentine's Day. So I kind of got on open table late, and I went, what's available? And I found this Amadeus Manor, and I thought, that will be kind of quirky. Like, <laughs> let's do it. And so I made the reservation, and it was a couple days before Valentine's Day, right? And so we go over there, and what had happened was they had, they had not – they didn't know how to use open table at yeah. the restaurant. And so they did not know how to cap how many tables were sold. They had massively <laughs> overbooked. So massively. It was almost like when you're at the airport and they're going, "We have a thousand dollars for anybody who wants to not get on this plane right now." But they like there were so many people waiting for tables, <laughs> and they were doing their best, and they were creating tables where there weren't tables in the restaurant. So they were doing things like turning over whatever, like a box and putting a tablecloth over it and two chairs around it. And it was just, it was a, it was a mess. They were shoving people but, in every nook But what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Yeah. It's Valentine's Day. It's not like we're going somewhere else. So we waited. We finally got sat at a table. And then the server, who was just frantic, like in a panic, comes to the table and is like, oh, has anybody helped you? No. <laughs> no, we just got here. And then I was looking around the room at the other people in the restaurant. And they were all looking at us. And I was like, why are they looking at us? And I noticed nobody had food. Nobody. <laughs> nobody had food. And so the running joke became that, like, people kept getting seated, but nobody was getting food. And so I was kind of going, like, at some point they're going to have a problem here. And so we all started – it was almost like gallows humor. Uh-huh. We were all laughing. Yeah. And everybody was kind of talking across the restaurant yeah. at each other, like, how uh. are you doing? You get bread? Yeah, we got bread. And <laughs> – and, you know, the poor server was running around, like, serving 40 tables and was doing his best. Yeah. And, and then, because I'm classy, I had uh, made arrangements for a guy to come in and sing to Anna, right? Friend of ours, uh, Mark Meek, who uh, I think he's a politician now, uh, he, uh, he was doing these singing telegrams for charity. And so he said, hey, do you want me to sing to Anna? You know, I'll sing some Frank Sinatra. And I said, sure, we're going to be at Amadeus Manor at like 7 o'clock on <laughs> Valentine's Day night. So sure enough, in the middle of this mess, <laughs> here comes Mark into the restaurant in a tuxedo. A tuxedo with Everybody a red, in the room is like, bow tie. Yeah, what is going on? He's got a rose for Anna, and he breaks into Frank Sinatra, okay? And he's crowing and singing, and I'm looking at him, and I'm a little bit embarrassed because it's drawing attention. And also... The rest of the night is kind of a disaster. But in the end, they finally – it took about an hour and a half. They got everybody fed. But as they started seating tables, do you remember how that was, Anna? 
Like a new couple would come in. There'd be a brand new seating. Yeah. We would all and be like. The whole room would laugh because we'd be like, oh, new victims, yeah. new blood. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome to our adventure. We'd be like, how's your night going? <laughs> They'd be like, great. We're like, okay, buckle up. <laughs> and, and But in the end, it was so bad. They only had like two different things you could order. It was like menu A or menu B. Yes. So you get the whole, you know, appetizer, salad, main entree, dessert. Yeah. It was so bad, guys, that we, nobody got the dessert. Nobody made it that far. Yeah. And we left. We paid our bill. And the waiter. I think it was like three hours later. It was like a three-hour. Oh, hour, it was a marathon. It's a three-hour meal. And when we left, there were people lined up outside still. Uh-huh. And the waiter came running into the parking lot, and he was carrying a dish with a piece of chocolate cake on it. Like a real dish, like yeah. an antique dish. Yeah, nice dish. And he... He's saying, you forgot your dessert. And we were like, we didn't forget it. Like, no. We just gave up. We gave up, man. And so he goes, here, take it. And I was like, well, what about your plate? He goes, just take it. And he ran away, ran back into the restaurant. <laughs> to this day, I have said plate on the wall in this studio. It is, you know, bolted to the wall, that little dessert plate. And it's a great memory. Uh-huh. You got to make the best of situations like that, right? That's really what it is, especially in these times when, like, restaurants are hard-pressed to find people right now. Everybody's short-staffed, and so, you know, they're doing the best they can. So you can you have a choice in a situation like that. You can be really ticked off and grumpy and ruin the experience for yourself and everybody else that you're with, or you can find the humor in it and realize it's not the end of the world. These are first-world problems, and... Now, especially looking back, it's a great story, and you can laugh about yeah. it. Yeah. I don't know, though. I've had my moments, too, where I know it's hard when you're in that situation. But I do think we we should be more forgiving right now. Yeah, especially I am, now. Yeah. I'm big on, like, don't lower your expectations yeah. when it comes to sports teams. But I'll, I'll tell you this. Let's say you're at a sporting venue and there's a long line at the concession stand. I would... I would venture to guess that they're having staffing issues yeah. if there's a long line. Yeah. They want to sell you those $9 beers, <laughs> $10 beer. What's a beer cost now, Stephen? Oh, I don't know. I'm not a big drinker, so uh, I'm not. Notice how it came right yeah. to you. Might be double digits. <laughs> Sean would know. Sean, what's a beer costing at like the, uh, at the World big... Track and Field Championships? Uh, actually, I never I never um, indulged into a adult beverage at the the beat the other day, but I was at a baseball game a couple, weeks, or a couple months ago, and it was – Thirteen dollars. Thirteen for yeah. beer. You know, like a bigger yeah. one, right? Like yeah. probably like I guess you know a, a tall one, but yeah. yeah, thirteen, twelve. How big is that beer for thirteen bucks? Uh, I want to say eighteen ounces. You it's should... probably like one, it's one and a half, like a normal one. It's like you a tall. Get a pony keg for thirteen dollars. <laughs> a pony keg. Yeah. <laughs> <That's pretty. laughs> Why was that? Is that dating me? Yes. <laughs> I have totally. no idea what that is. Okay, never mind. <laughs> These uh, days we would say growler, but yeah, pitcher. I just, I just, you know, and here's the other thing, like concessions, you know, we all know the teams, they love that you are eating at the arena. Yeah. Like I, there's part of me that like, I hate the idea that around Moda Center in Portland, that there's not a lot of restaurant options for mm-hmm. people who are going to the game. Yeah. But I secretly think the Blazers probably love it. Because people come to the game and they eat and they pay the concession prices. Oh, smart. up the revenue. But yeah. at least at the Moda Center, there's some decent options. Yes. Like They've in done the actual better. arena. They've done better. Like some of those carts that are around there are really good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but I also think, like, Anna, we were, at, we were at, in Beijing in 2008 for the Olympics. Mm-hmm. Guys, I'm going to tell you something. They don't know how to do concessions in China. 
the people who go to the sporting events, NBA, the NBA players, the Dream Team was playing. They had all these Olympic events. We go into the venues, and I'm covering the things, but I go to, like, the concession stand because I want to get a soda or a hot dog. They had no idea <laughs> that it's such an American thing or a European thing, too. It is not. The people in China do not know how to watch games when it comes to a concession standpoint. Well, yeah. let's be fair. Like, so hot dogs and soda aren't really a thing in China, right? No, not really. And in fact, when we ordered a hot dog yeah. and a soda at the stadium at the Bird's Nest in China, what crow's we nest. got at yeah. the Crow's Nest was it was essentially something a little bit larger than a Dixie cup of soda and a hot dog no bun on a stick it yeah. was just a plain like a hot dog on a popsicle and it stick. was like three-quarter size too yeah. it was oddly like a little sized like, like a little hot like, dog hot dogs are easy to make i feel like uh concessions kind of favor american food yes. uh, versus chinese food it's probably like pretty hard to make like it's good quality stuff right Hot dogs, yeah. burgers, nachos, like that stuff's all yep. super easy to make. I was I lectured yeah. them. I said to them, listen, I said, you guys are missing out. And they looked at me like I was some kind of foreigner trying to tell them what to do. I said, you guys are missing out. They, they, I go, and they were charging a dollar, yeah. the equivalent of a dollar for the hot dog and a dollar for the soda. Everything was a dollar, a popsicle. They had a popsicle. You could get a popsicle, but you couldn't get a hot dog bun. So what are they snacking on during these events? They had... They're they, bringing their own snacks. They're Chinese, man. Yeah. They're yeah. calling in their own snacks. They did have like a little cup of noodle type oh, ramen thing. They did have a ramen thing. And I, I, said, I said, hey, not a bad idea, the ramen. But I said, hot dog, you put a bun on that thing and you can get eight bucks for it in America. And I said, what are you guys doing? We need to supersize all of your offerings. But your options were a popsicle, uh -huh. a hot dog on that stick, a, a little cup of noodles, or a tiny soda. Yeah. That was it. Yes. And I, there was no lines. Nobody in China uh -huh. was buying the concessions. Yeah. Anybody who was buying was an American or a European who was going over to the concession stand yeah. hoping for garlic fries and yeah. getting a big air sandwich. <laughs> Where are my garlic fries? Hey, your dude hasn't called back yet. He's What's going the, on? I think it's going well in the store. You think? Cause, yeah, because if, if, if it went sideways, he would have been right out of the store, and he would have called right back in. Maybe. He oh, would have called maybe. live from the store. Yeah, the next thing we're going to hear is Bob yelling at the cashier. <laughs> Going, talk to Gonzano. I hope it hasn't resulted in fisticuffs. No, he my worst experience ever. Didn't you guys feel like he was making a good faith effort to make it work? Yeah, because he said it was a couple days ago. So he's sat back. He's thought about it. He's pondered what he's going to say. He's really thought about what he's going to do when he goes in there. I'm dying to know what happens to Bob. Coming up, uh, we'll play Punch It Audio, plus the 5 at 5, still ahead. In the 5 o'clock hour, Frank Brickowski, the Brick, is going to join us to tell stories from the NBA. The uh, resident enforcer of the Seattle Sonics and some others, Frank Brickowski, in the 5 o'clock hour. You're going to want to be here for that. Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. We're going to play some punch and audio. It's the best sound from all around. Anna's going to participate as well. Anna, you've been outside. I haven't been outside in a while. Not since miniature golf this morning. Oh, yeah, that was a blast. You didn't enjoy miniature golf because... Uh, the six-year-old and the eight-year-old were not uh, were not behaving. <sighs> yeah, 
But they're six and eight, Anna. Like you can't expect them to act like they're. Yeah, I was ready to quit at like whole six. I was done. I was ready to issue the consequence and say we're going home. Yeah, I had to be like Mel Gibson and Braveheart in that moment, and I had to, I had to get up on the hill, rally the troops. (laughs) You know, give a little speech. I'm still speech. not sure what the best solution was. You think it was good to mm. force them to play it through and tolerate one another until yes. whole 18. 100%. And I was of the frame of mind that if they can't get along and stop accusing each other of cheating, that we just need to call it and try it another day. All right. So let me put this out for the room. I mean, okay, so here's the scenario. The six-year-old and eight-year-old are with us. We're playing miniature golf. And we're in Clackamas. What's the course? Uh, Eagles e- Landing. Yeah, Eagles Landing. Eagles Landing. Okay, we were there. And uh, <laughs> and I, uh, uh, about four or five holes, just fine. Kids were fine. But they were on each other's nerves earlier in the day. They were, uh, they, one of them had thrown a, a punch or a kick, and the other one had retaliated, and there was a whole speech that happened on the way to the golf course about, you know, you don't touch each other, you know, you don't hit each other. And then the eight-year-old said, yeah, but you told me it was okay if somebody's hitting me that I could hit back, which I did tell her. Like, I don't want her to go to school and get in a fight and just stand there and be like, my dad said I can't hit anybody. Um, so I, uh, I, I was – I think you were a little more fed up with them than I was. I was, yes. Okay, so we get out there, Sean, Stephen, Anna. Uh, I, at one of the holes, I went to go get a bottle of water around the sixth hole. I ran back to the clubhouse yep. to get a bottle of water. And as I returned, and had all the balls and the clubs in her hands, and she says, we're done. We're leaving. And I said, no, we're not. We're not leaving. We're going to play through this. And I said, what's going on? She said, They're, what did you say? I said, they are behaving terribly. They are arguing the whole time, and I can't – I don't want to continue, like, granting them the opportunity to even play. Okay. So, so you're, you're I wanted take to the game send away. a message. You're taking the balls and you're going home. <laughs> yes, I was over it. All right. And so you think the right move there in that scenario is call the game and force them to come in off the golf course, the miniature golf course, and they're <laughs> they're not going to get to play anymore. Yeah. And that's going to be the penalty. Yes. And I have them of the mindset that they probably got what they came there to get. They played four or five holes. They were kind of done with it. And... I don't, I don't think they would have been punished at all if you made them stop. I, and so my mindset is make them finish this. Tolerate each other. Get along. You have to play through this because I don't like the concept of quitting. Who's right? I think John is right. And I also think this because as a dad of a 7- and 3-year-old where I've taken them places and they annoy me really badly and I want to leave, <laughs> I always think back, well, I just paid to do this and so I'm kind of cheap and so I don't want to waste my money. Yeah. Right. So that's another reason why I think that I would make them keep it out, because I think John's right. I think they were probably done. And if you let them quit, I think they're getting what they want. Okay. see, I normally would have probably agreed with you on that, except that we were playing for free because we won free passes to play Mm. on trivia night. And so the the money part of it. See, normally I'm with you. I'm like, we paid good money. We're going to play all still a free round of golf. Get along. You know, it wasn't like that, that it was free. We had gone there. It was trivia night yeah. when we popped in there, yeah. and we dominated trivia night. So that was the prize. <laughs> it was a, it was a free <laughs> round of, it was a free round of golf, a lovely, luxurious <laughs> round of miniature golf, and we decided to cash in these these coupons on this lovely Wednesday morning. Uh, where do you stand on this, Sean? You've been awfully quiet. 
Uh, yeah, it's, I don't have a lot of credibility um, in parenting <laughs> conversations. Uh, only non-parent the entire station here. Uh, I, uh, I'm i Team Anna here. I think mini golf is a privilege, and it's something that's obviously fun for the kids. And if there are if there are threats of, hey, we're, this is going to be taken away from you, like next time you guys bicker, like this is done, and then it happens, like – if if nothing gets canceled there, like if you guys keep playing, then they think it's okay and they don't really have that that message. Mm-hmm. But if if you walk off and they're no longer playing mini golf and the day is ruined, then that shows them like, hey, you know, we we weren't okay, and next time this this can't happen. This bickering. It's I think a, if you it's, go ahead, Steve. it's a good life lesson though. You got to do things that you don't want to do, and I've been trying to teach my seven year old that because. He's going through that stage now where he just wants to do things, whether it's you know play video games or go to the pool. And I'm like, no, we have to go here. I don't want to go here. I don't want to do it. You don't want to do it, but we have to do it. This is just something you do as you get older. I think if we were to leave them at the course, Anna had the right strategy. Like, if you're like, we're oh, out of here. If you and I just we're left, here, and left them to fend you know for what? themselves. You guys aren't getting along. You can just stay here. And we pull, we pull off and we go have lunch somewhere. We come back a couple hours later. Just go to the restaurant. They're, they're going to be have sitting a, there. Have shots at 10 in the morning. Lesson learned. Okay. Lesson I was learned. ready, by the way, Sounds like for a that little shot. bit of a safety concern. Yeah. But I think the overarching message is troubling. Like, I think you got – I'm not a big fan of quitting. I You don't quit. You start something, you finish it. But and I'm I said also that. a fan of consequences. You mm-hmm. can't just behave what's, a certain what's way. What's the consequence? They the, don't want to play anymore. The consequence is that they don't get family time. Like okay, I think it's way more important to you and me. Time. That's a win for the them. kids. Yeah, that's yeah. a win for the kids. <laughs> oh my god! I think you take away their iPads. Now we're talking consequence. That's a consequence for me. I need the uh, video games. I need the iPad to keep my sanity for them. <laughs> All right, Bob's still in the store in Tiger. I'm a little worried now. We haven't heard from Maybe him. Maybe Bob's taking a job at this at his favorite store. Like they've hired him. Hey, we're short staff. We have his number, right? Get in here. Can we call well, him? If it's his favorite place, he's probably got business to do in there. You know? Yeah. Mm. What kind of place is this favorite place? So many yeah. things. There are dispensaries on that Highway 99 in Tiger. I'm just saying. I, there's other things on Highway 99 <laughs> too, but I, I'm just wondering. <laughs> <laughs> where he got bad customer service now. You know, I'm just hoping. Like, he calls back and he says, okay, I got my toaster. You know, like, you know that's what I'm hoping for. Is this a or, dolphin scenario that we were talking about yesterday? <laughs> the other day? I, I don't know. I don't know. He's going to be like, okay, everything went well. I got change. And, you know, they, they had all the change I needed. Everything was good. Uh, oh, man. Okay. We're going to play Punch and Audio after the break. Leave it here. <laughs> You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. It's going to be a fast-moving 20 minutes on this show. Frank Burkowski will be along at about 5.15 to talk about uh, life in the NBA. Great storyteller. If you are interested in the NBA at all and professional sports or you know, what it's like uh, to be in there mixing it up in the NBA in the heyday of the NBA. Frank Brikowski coming up in the 5 o'clock hour. We're going to play some Punch It Audio. We'll do the 5 at 5 at the top of the hour, but let's let let's go. The 
Justice in the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Justin Herbert, quarterback with the Los Angeles Chargers, talking about his personal goals for the season. Here's the former Duck quarterback. Punch it. Personal goal is just to be the best quarterback and teammate that I can be. Um, I, I try not to look too much into statistics. I think that can kind of skew or, or throw you off from what you're trying to accomplish. But as long as I'm working hard and doing the right things on and off the field, um, I think we'll be in good shape. Justin Herbert always saying the right things. Gosh, he's so good in that scenario. Uh, I think it's going to be a big year for him, obviously. I think it's an important growth year for him. Anna, you have thoughts on Herbert and what you just heard? Uh, I think he's, I think you're right. I think he's always really spot on when it comes to public, you know, speaking and just on message and and good tone. I don't know if he's done some good media coaching over the years uh, or if he's just good at that, but he's, uh, he's always stellar. I think he's great. And I think, I think uh, teammates could learn from him, right? The people could learn from him. Bill Belichick, uh, doing Bill Belichick impression. When asked about, uh, you know, what the headline of his season is, here's Bill Belichick channeling his inner Belichick. Punch it. Yeah. What is the headline going into the season? I don't know. <laughs> We're just taking it one day at a time. I don't know. We're taking it one day at a time. Is there genius in what Bill Belichick does there from a media standpoint? Because he's never going to say anything that is that outlandish when he play when he does that. Like he, he keeps know? it short and sweet. So you know, if you uh, look at statements, brevity brevity wins. You get in trouble the more that you say. <laughs> brevity indeed. Moving along, Kirk Ferentz talking about name, image, likeness. This is Iowa's head coach, longest tenured head coach in college football. Punch it. So, there, you know, there's just so many things on, on the horizon and spending six years in the NFL where they had a salary cap. Um, and I commend our conference because we do revenue share, some don't. And that, that's more like Major League Baseball versus NFL. Um, but, you know, there is a system there for, you know, a limit on how much or how little players can be paid. Uh, and there's also a system of movement. You know, there are times when players can move and can't move. And, I have no idea how you get to that point in college football. I'm not smart enough to know that. I'm not smart enough to know who's going to do it. But right now, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of us that are a little confused on what the rules are and what are the, you know, how do you operate. So I'm not sure that's healthy. And, and we just have such a good game. I hate to see it, you know, implode or, you know, suffer a setback because, you know, things are a little bit too loose. Look, I don't think he's alone. I think there are some a lot of coaches who are concerned about what's going on in college football. Uh, you know, I've I've talked with coaches who believe that what the answer, that believe that the answer, is literally to create a a pro style system where coaches can bring players in and cut them if they don't perform. I don't know how that's going to fly, but uh, I do think we're all headed toward federal intervention. Uh, like it or not, I think that's where this is all headed. Finally. Uh, let's go to Marcus Freeman talking about Notre Dame possibly moving to the Big Ten. Is this real? This is on the Rich Eisen Show. Punch it. You know, between Jack Swerbert and Father Jenkins, I know they're always going to 
make sure that Notre Dame's in a, a position to have success. And, and we obviously love the, uh, the opportunity to be independent, and uh, that's something that we take a lot of pride in. And But I know they will never put our football program or our university in a place that we will fall behind. And so I let those two uh, make those decisions. And, uh, again, I can continue to focus on this team. So I guess my follow-up question of how badly do you want to join the Big Ten? Should I cross that off my my, my list right here? <laughs> how badly do you want to join the Big Ten? Yeah, I don't um, – you know, I wouldn't sit here and say that, you know, we're <laughs> – we're running to, to join the Big Ten or any other conference. Again, we, we love the the opportunity to be independent, and, uh, you know, we're going to continue to do so until I'm told otherwise. Okay. There it is. Marcus Freeman, Notre Dame, talking about Notre Dame. Look, Notre Dame has the ability to negotiate a deal that could bring them in the neighborhood of 70 to $100 million a year in media rights revenue. They also have access to the playoff. Notre Dame doesn't need to join anything. To, to get anything more. So it's why I think Notre Dame will continue to be independent until it's not. Like, if, if, the, if access to the playoff were cut off, if the media rights revenue that Notre Dame could negotiate on its own paled in comparison to what the SEC and the Big Ten were getting, different conversation. Dennis Dodd talking about the Big Ten conference he thinks that the Big Ten wants more Pac-12 teams. Here's Dennis Dodd. Punch it. The Big Ten is now targeting Cal, Stanford, Oregon, and Washington in further expansion that would bring the league to 20 teams at least. There's another report out there that the Big Ten is also looking at Florida State and Miami. And in that point would be a monopoly of college athletics at the top of the food chain. With a 20-team league, they would control more than 30% of the schools in the current Power Five. Now, this has sent reverberations uh, throughout the industry. Television sources have consternation because they don't know how to price these four schools because they're just not worth the 80 to 100 million that the current 16 are going to get in 2024 with USC and UCLA. Uh, college athletics further is upset, you know, administrative-wise, because you know how many is too many. This has the chance to wreck the Pac-12, uh, you know, to make it go away, uh, or at least stay together in some limited fashion. You've already heard names like San Diego State headed to the Pac-12, Arizona maybe to the Big 12 as they seek to expand, but nothing on this scale. This is major news and would have reverberations, as I said, throughout the industry. Yeah, if it were true, yes, but I just don't see it penciling out. Cal, Stanford, Oregon, Washington, targeting. What does targeting mean? It's weak language. Are they in negotiations with these schools? No. Does it make sense for Fox, which is offering a estimated $71.6 million in media value to each member in the Big Ten? Can Oregon bring? Can Washington bring? Can Cal and Stanford bring? in excess of $71.6 million in value? No. It's closer to 30 to $45 million for all of those. And for that reason, I don't think this is real. I don't think the Big Ten Conference actually wants Oregon or Washington. I don't think it actually wants Stanford or Cal. I, I think Miami and Florida State probably could bring uh, that kind of value. But I'm skeptical that the Big Ten Conference is going to 20. Uh, not anytime soon, at least. And for that reason, I want to say I'm out. But for that reason, <laughs> I don't think that this report has got legs to stand on. I think this is something to talk about. And 
And Anna, you know the, the news cycle. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of bad weather in in local TV news. Like, oh, it's blown out of proportion. Blown out of proportion because they, they got to have something to talk about. Snowmageddon. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I, I also think it's interesting the conversations that are going on about college players unionizing and whether, you know, that has any legs to it. Yeah. I mean, the Big Ten, there's talk about, you know, because everybody knows there's money now. The Big Ten players would like some of it. So it'll be interesting to see if they can get to a point where they are considered employees by the conferences and they can unionize. But that is a whole other discussion. I just I don't I like Dennis Dodd. I know Dennis Dodd. I just don't think this thing is real. All right, coming up the five at five. We'll give you the five most interesting, exciting stories that are on your radar. Uh, I you know I'm waiting eagerly to see if Bob calls back in to tell us how his customer service experience went. Uh, we'll also get a visit at about 5:15 from Frank Brakowski, longtime NBA enforcer who is going to just tell stories. He told me he might need a half hour. Last time we did like 20 minutes with him, and it just it, it was fantastic. So he will be joining us coming up in the happy hour. That's right. It's the happy hour. Leave it here. B-F-F-T. From the Pack West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. Well, the 5 o'clock hour is always happy. Anna's here. We're going to give you the five at five, the five biggest, most important kind of sort of stories that are going on. Frank Brakowski, resident big man enforcer in the NBA in the 1980s, played for a number of teams, played in the NBA Finals, had some interesting battles with Dennis Rodman and Shaq and others. He's going to be here to tell stories. It's going to be like story time with Uncle Frank. Coming up at 5.15. But before that, we're going to get into the five big stories and what they mean. Let's do it, Anna. The Five at Five. Apparently, there's an offer on the table. The United States is offering a trade with Russia. They would like Brittany Griner, WNBA star, to go free. In exchange, the Biden administration has offered a deal to Russia. I don't know what the... Uh, what the offer is maybe it's a a left-handed starting pitcher maybe it's a future nba player but can we do something can 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 we all can you do me a favor everybody we have talked about britney griner and news reports and people have re reiterated the phrase wrongfully detained she's not wrongfully detained she broke a law in that country so she's not wrongfully detained for breaking a law. So let's just stop that. Let's just say she's being detained or jailed. But Brittany Griner and another jailed American, Paul Whelan, have both been offered as part of a deal with Russia. Now, we don't have details on the proposal. Maybe Damian Lillard's involved. Oh, no. Not involved. So the White House basically is trying to do a prisoner swap with Russia. We would like to have Brittany Griner back and get her in a WNBA uniform and get her out the hell out of Russia. And apparently that's on the table. But I think the, the phrase wrongfully detained needs to be stopped. Like she broke a law. 
It's not a it's not a law that like you know a lot of us would see as uh, a major infraction, especially some of the more tolerant states in uh, the U- USA. But I keep hearing wrongfully detained, and my prosecutor friends are telling me actually technically she's not being wrongfully detained. She is being detained under a law that she broke in another country. So I think the when we say wrongfully detained, it puts the pressure and it puts the emphasis on Russia as if they have done something egregious and wrong here. They're just doing what Russia does. Russia's a horrible place, and you should not, you should not be in that country breaking laws. Yeah, but don't you think they're using her as a political pawn in this whole process? Come yeah, on. but is she being wrongfully detained? No, she yeah. tried to bring marijuana into a country where that's illegal. Yeah. So. She's traveling with it. But I'm just saying, let's not let's not give let's not take Russia off the hook here for how they're treating no. her and how she's how they're playing this out in the public court of law. No, Russia's dead last when it comes to like the United Nations standings <laughs> right now. Okay, but Brittany Griner probably should have been smarter, wiser with what she was doing, and should have got the hell out of there a lot earlier. Number two in our 5 at 5. Anna, go. It's your turn. Mike Trout wants people to know that his career is not over. It's not? (laughs) He is dealing with uh, a pretty rare back condition, but the Angel Star says it is manageable, and he plans to return for this season. So the reports have come out in the last few days that he has a rare spinal condition that could affect him for the rest of his career. But he's saying, hey, I appreciate the prayers and everything, but my career, not over. Don't count me out just yet. Good for Mike Trout for telling us he's alive and well. Hope he gets better. Baseball needs him back. Third thing in our 5 at 5. 49ers have made a move. They have finally given up on D Ford. Injury plague defensive end. The Niners released him today in a move that everybody sort of had expected that he was going to make. He's, he's also got back problems. John Lynch, the GM of the 49ers, said, look, uh, I don't see a whole lot of hope in him being a factor for us on the field. We've tried to be as patient as possible. This is no fault of D. He just ran into a bad situation. Uh, the move saves the 49ers $1.1 million against the 2022 salary cap. And, by the way, they'll pay out the bulk of his $11.5 million left on his deal over the next two years. This was going to be a big-time move for the Niners. They got him in a 2019 trade with the Chiefs. They got him for a second-round pick. They signed him to a five-year, $85 million deal, and he just has never panned out. Like, he wasn't the bookend across from Nick Bosa that the Niners thought he would be. Number four in our five at five. Anna, your turn. Jerry Jones apologizing again. It feels like he's always apologizing for something. Or maybe maybe he isn't. Maybe this is rare that he apologizes. But he is apologizing now for using an offensive term. He's saying, earlier today I made a reference, which I understand may have been viewed as offensive. He used the M word. M? It's a derogatory slur, according to the Little People of America, created as a label used to refer to people of short stature. He was paying tribute to former Cowboys director of scouting, Larry Lacewell, when he used the M word. Is Larry Lacewell a little person? I've got to assume that. What did he call him? The M word. 
I can't. Is that really a word that you can't say now? No, it's not. Because the little people of America considers that a derogatory slur, and they are issuing a statement. They issued one back in 2015, apparently, to abolish use of the M-word. Well, so, little people, okay, M-word, not okay. Is there any other slang that you can use for a little person? Dwarf. Sean says dwarf. Can we say dwarf? That one's okay. That's good? As far as I know. Do you know that? Like, are you tuned into this world? Uh, I knew. I knew the M word was off limits. That uh, that's been a thing. So be careful with that one. At least Will's no longer with us, by the way. But I, what I don't. Do you mean? It, so he. So Jerry Jones' comment. Uh, he was commemorating like ten oh, former he players. To, he was trying to be nice. Yes. And he ended up saying something derogatory. Not nice. Right. But th- th- that was new to me. I actually. I, I kind of knew that, but I didn't know that. I, I had to think for a minute. Wait, what's the M word? So now nah, you know. Yeah, when you said that. Yeah. I did the same damn thing. There you go. So what's the big deal? Well, the little people of America say that it's a big deal. Okay. Finally, fifth thing in our five at five. Veteran linebacker K.J. Wright signed a contract today with the Seattle Seahawks. And then he promptly retired. It was a ceremonial one-day contract. And it ended an 11-year playing career that included 10 seasons as a starter on those great Legion of Doom defenses that helped the Seahawks through the most successful stretch in franchise history. They won a Super Bowl. They should have won, too. Wright spent last season with the Raiders. He wanted to play a 12th season, but he said only with the Seahawks. The Seahawks didn't really have a place for him. He turned 33 on Saturday. He will officially end his career in the same place it began. Fourth round pick. His resume included one Pro Bowl, and he is retiring as the number three leading tackler in Seattle Seahawks history. Um, He was very emotional. Pete Carroll was emotional. Ceremonial. This is a nice thing. Because sports, you know, it's a business. But this ended up being like a nice little tribute the Seahawks did for a player. They let him retire in uniform. It's good for the fans. It's good for him. I don't know. We don't do this in any other industry, though. (laughs) It's kind of weird. Don't you think? It's charming. But don't you think, like, nobody goes back to, like, McDonald's and goes, I started my career here. Hire me for one more day so I could retire as a McDonald's employee. Like, what's the significance (laughs) of him, like, spending one more day in a Seahawks uniform? It's just symbolic. Yeah, it's but cute. Is it though? Yeah, I think it's kind of cute. I'm going to push back on it. Okay. I'm going to say <laughs> if we're going to allow NFL players to do this, all jobs should be able to do this. Wherever you started your career, you get to finish it. Steven, what was the first job you ever had? Uh, I worked at Fred Meyer in the shoe department. Yep. Wow. See? God bless you. When you're Thank 65, you. they should Fred Meyer should be like, "We're bringing Steven back. We're going to hire him for one more day." Hang my shirt up in the rafters. Yep. <laughs> Sean, where was your first job? Noodles and Company. Yeah. Nice. Noodles and Company announces that it's, it's signed Sean to a one-day ceremonial contract. He's going to be slinging noodles for one more day. <laughs> Anna, your first job ever. Officially? Or uno- yeah. unofficially, officially. I mean, the Prestige Inn on Sandy Boulevard. No, officially. <sighs> officially? Uh, oh, this is a long pause here. I know. I worked at a real estate office as a receptionist. Yeah, bring her on back and have her cook up a pot of coffee. <laughs> you know? If you know, I, you know. I was uh, 
I was like 15, 16. Yeah, what was I yours? worked at a Christmas tree farm. That was your first game? Yeah. That, that ranch should bring me back. Ceremonial one-day contract. <laughs> Let them cut down a tree. I get it. It's for the fans. It's for the players. It's just kind of silly. It's promotional. It's meaningless. It's promotional. It's kind of for them. We're talking about it. They win. They win. Uh, I should have said an unnamed NFL player signed <laughs> with an unnamed NFL team for one day. To make us all go Google it. <laughs> that is the 5 at 5. Frank Brickowski is coming up. Longtime NBA enforcer. Also, uh, we'll get an update from Bob, who went into his favorite establishment to uh, give him a piece of his mind. He's still in that store. Bob, I'm thinking about you. He's in the Leave. phone lines. He's in the oh, phone he, lines. Oh, he's there. Let's grab Bob and let's bring him on. we got to get an update here. All right, before we get Frank Prakowski on the line, let's get Bob back on. Bob, how did it go? Well, first off, um, I was a paper boy for the Oregonians, so I want a ceremonial <laughs> one day. Um, Alas, so. there is no more paper to deliver. But go ahead. So before I called you, I was – I. Yesterday I said, I am not buying this from that store. I'll buy it from a different store. I called you. You said, basically, go in there, give them a second chance. This, that, and the other could have happened. I walk in. Uh, Natalie says, hi, may I help you? I go, wow, I like you. And so I said, do you want to hear a story? So I tell her what I had just done talking to you, and she goes, Oh, they're no longer here. I'm the new manager, and I have no employees. And I go, wow. So we talked through everything. Um, I was unable to make the purchase because they were out of stock. But uh, she gave me her card, gave me her email, said, tell you they need help, <laughs> and uh, that I could get a job working for her. However, I've been retired 19 years, and it might be hard yeah. to show up every day. Did you buy <laughs> Did you buy the product that you wanted to buy? No. Um, I was all ready to, but they were having computer problems. Oh, boy. And so yeah. I couldn't purchase it. <laughs> but it, but it Oh it man! Make a huge difference calling in. Well, and I, I'm here for you. Thank you. you. We'll bill your insurance. <laughs> and we'll we'll have, have at it. There's Bob and Tigered. He walked in. Yeah. The people he dealt with before no longer work there, and he got a job offer. That's that's the summation of that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> glad it's working. It's working out somehow. Frank Perkowski coming up. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I love good storytelling. Frank Brickowski, longtime NBA big man. Played for a number of teams. I could I could list them all. But if I did, Brickowski probably get mad at me. For listing them all. He's joining us now. I think he was making a drive earlier. What are you doing, Brick? 
Johnny, what's happening? We don't have time to list all the teams. That's the problem. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I love it. Were you driving? What was going on? You making a trip today, or what's happening? Yeah, I was driving back from Bozeman to back to the lake, back, back to Flathead Lake. Uh, a good friend of mine had a 60 birthday, 60th birthday party, so we were yucking it up the last couple of days. Love that. Love that, man. Uh, let let's let me ask you this. It's NBA summer. All this talk, you know, it, it has become a year-round thing. I don't, I don't think it was that way in the 80s and the 90s when you were playing, but it's a year-round thing. Everybody's talking about where is Kevin Durant going to be, trade demands. Uh, it feels different. What were the summers like when you were playing? You know, I I would check out from basketball. I, it's so all-consuming and exhausting. I, I wouldn't touch a basketball till the third week of August. I go down to L.A. and play for a month and a half and work out two days and just bust my butt, but you didn't, there was nothing to hear, right? Uh, there was some free agent movement or contract situations like you have normally in any sport, but it wasn't like this. It wasn't the 24-7 news cycle. It's almost like the politics. You can't get away from it. It's like every time I turn on the TV, it's something about basketball, which is good for basketball, I guess. You know, we want more fans. We want more people listening and checking in on it, so I guess it's good. Yeah, and I think yeah, it is good. It kind of generates that interest. But did guys demand trades in your day? Do you remember teammates going, hey, I want to be traded, and it becoming a big story? Or did guys just play? Oh, only if you you were able. So I was in Milwaukee. Mike Dunleavy was the president and coach, which I didn't like. I thought he, he wouldn't play somebody or he wouldn't would not not play somebody because he didn't want to ruin their trade bat. And he taught the Todd day. We had a rookie out of Arkansas where playing like crap, shooting 20% from the threes has a green light and Mike's still playing him because Mike wants him to play well so he can trade him. Hmm. Well, that's not in the best interest of the team. Anyway, the point I was going to make was I had one more year on my contract knowing they would have to sign me that coming year or I'm gone. So I told Mike, look, trade me. I want out. I'm not going to re-sign with you after next year, so get something for me now. And I went to Charlotte, and, uh, that's, you know, I, I'm not one guy, a guy with a statue to say, hey, trade me or I'm not playing. You know, nowadays, I don't know. You sign a contract, I feel like you're obligated to that contract, unless it's just grossly inadequate, right? You, you have a bust-out year, and you're averaging 30, where you were paid for, you know, 10-point production the year before. I think the team... You know, in order to be on your good side or be good with you and want to keep you long-term, may renegotiate a contract or may trade you to where you want to go as long as you can get something for them, right? Um, it's a different world, Johnny. As you know, you know better than anybody. It's, it's just uh, I can't even track Kevin Durant, Durant and all that's going on with Kevin. and It's just crazy. The trash talk on the court has always been interesting to me. You heard it. You were around great trash talkers. Who are the best in the league at your time? Oh, Larry, you got to go with Larry. We we all we all had fun with it, right? It was, there was no nasty kind of trash talker. Larry would be real humorous in it. And like I said to Larry one time, he was a he was a consultant with the Celtics in '97 when I was there. I told Larry we were talking stuff back and forth. There was a couple of other players. I said, Larry, I had 42 on you one year. He jumped out of his seat. You never had 40. I said, No, no, settle down, Larry. Pump the brakes. I had 12 one game. I had 18 another game. I had 42 <laughs> on you that year. <laughs> so it was fun, you know. It's like, but but you had to be respectful, right? If you were disrespectful of a player or 
like Steph does a dance. And this isn't a criticism of Steph. This is a criticism of the league and the way it is now. If you shot a shot and you hit a three-pointer on me or you came in you dunked and you did a dance, I'm touching you up the next play. You, you, something's coming. And everybody was like that, right? I, I, I blocked Jim Clemens' shot when I was a rookie, and I told him to get that stuff out of there. He gave me a forearm shiver in the neck I, ne- I still talk about today. And I never messed with Jim Clemens again. I never told him, get that stuff out of here. And that's kind of the police in your own game. Now I think the referees have too much power. The, the, kid, the, the guys just taunt. And, I mean, we would, we would be – it wouldn't happen. It wouldn't happen. Frank Burkowski with us. Longtime NBA big man. You know, you got to play at a high level in the postseason. What's the difference between postseason basketball and regular season basketball? Because I look at your postseason career, you played 37 games in the playoffs. That must have been a lot of fun. It was. You don't know what the difference is until you experience it, right? It's like every friggin' play means something. Where during the season, it's like, eh, you know. It's another game. We're playing three, four games a week. But when that those playoffs start, and they start ramping up, so you get through the first round, you get through the second round, and the pressure just builds. I would take an NBA nap every game day. In the last two rounds of the finals, and I wasn't even playing that much. I, I, it's just so consuming. You're so nervous. You're so hyped. You couldn't. I couldn't sleep at night, let alone sleep during the day. You know, I'd get my sleep somewhat, but it's just a pressure cooker. And and you, we're going back 25 years, 20, 25 years, where now it's the it's the 24-7 news cycle that grates on these players. And I feel bad for them. You know, it's like we had to worry about one or two papers in the local scene. And then, you know, USA Today, what they said. But that was it, really. We weren't on social media. We weren't on this 24-7 grind of news. We always talk about it being a game, and people will talk about the love of the game and and that stuff. But when you're in it, it it has to feel like a business. How much of a business did it feel to you at different times? And when you're amid that, like, you know, it's a game when you started out as a kid. Like, were there moments where you had to check yourself and go, hey, uh, you know, make sure you enjoy your time here because it won't last forever? Yeah, it's hard hard when you're in it. Like, you know, on this weekend I was just away. There were some new friends in from the East Coast, of friends of friends. They all wanted to talk about basketball. I really enjoyed talking about basketball. Where I don't, I have it in the past. It's just it grinds you down. And the like Howie Long and I always say, the further we get from our career, the more we enjoy. Right? It's we're able to look back nostalgically and romantically and think, wow, I, I'm amazed at what I did. I'm like, really? but because when you're in it, you don't. You don't experience it. You're so consumed with it. And I think a lot of people talk about that in different careers or different different kind of modalities where it's so, just so consuming. You can't, you don't have the luxury to stop and enjoy, right? It's just, you better be ready for the next game. You better be ready for the next play. You know what I mean? It's like, so it, it was tough. It was tough. It, it, you know, people from the outside, they see the games and the glitter and the run and this and that. Oh, my God, I want to do it. Well, you, you try doing it. You know, 82 games, another 20 games of playoffs, another 15 games of preseason or whatever it is now. The human body's not built. The human psyche's not built to perform like that. And it's amazing that these kids do perform the way they do. When I look at Damian Lillard, I'm like, I'm amazed by him. Let me ask you, you mentioned Howie Long. How does a NFL defensive tackle and an NBA enforcer become friends? Oh, it's a good story. <laughs> 
I'm glad you asked. I'm playing for the Lakers in 85, 86. He's with the Raiders. The Raiders are in L.A. I, I live in, I'm living in Manhattan Beach. The practice facility for the Raiders is in El Segundo, the next town north of us on the beach. I go, the, my strength coach from Penn State, this guy John Dunn, Mother Dunn, gets the head strength coach job at the Raiders. I go over there to see him. I end up meeting Howie and Todd Christensen and then Marcus Allen, the whole crew. And I asked John, I go, John, does it, can anybody work out? I mean, can you think I can work out here? He goes, oh, no, Al Davis, the only person that allows anybody in here outside of the team is Al Davis. So I'm at the forum the next night playing in a game. I go up to the forum club, and I see Al Davis in the lobby, and I walk up to him. And I said, Mr. Davis, my name's Frank. He goes, Frank, I know who, I know who the hell you he, he used a couple curse words in here I won't use with you. But he, he goes, I know who the hell you are, Frank. What do you want from me? And he had a big smile on his face. I said, well, Mr. Davis, I live in Manhattan Beach, and, uh, and I met Howie, and John Dunn was my strength coach at Penn State. I said, I'd love to work out at your, at your facility. He goes, you go down there 24-7. Anybody mess with you, you tell them to talk to me. <laughs> so I'm down there the next day doing some benching, and John Dunn. John Dunn comes running over me. Dude, dude, you can't be here. I'll get fired. I'll get fired. I was like, go talk to Al. I love that. I, I got a chance to cover the Raiders a little bit when Al was alive, and it was it was fascinating to see him in the locker room, engaged in his sweatsuit. Like, I don't think they're going to make owners like that now. Now you got groups of 25 people. You know, it's a bunch of suits. You hardly know who really owns the team anymore. I think the days of like there being one owner who owns everything and nobody else is involved are are probably long gone. Yeah, I, I think so too. And Al was a hands-on owner, right? He he knew football inside and out. He was he was racially sensitive. He was the first guy to hire a black coach in Art Shell, and he he was hands-on and 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 passionate, right? You don't you see these guys that are passionate about the sport? They don't know basketball like Al knew football. And he had his own little stands on the practice field. And Howie, Howie was uh, – he always had a chip on his shoulder about being from a small school, Villanova, not being a high draft choice, and all these big draft choices coming in. And Howie was a heavyweight boxer. He was 32-0 and 0 in, in college in boxing. And if he were here, he would say, I had one really good punch with an uppercut. He goes, it was really effective. <laughs> so – so we're at the practice facility, and I'm just watching practice. Al is over in his private bleachers, and there's a big draft pick from, from Nebraska, and, and they're doing pass blocking where you just kind of grab a guy and ride him out as if you blocked him. And when he lets go of Al, he kind of pushes him away. Sorry, what? And the whole field just stops. <laughs> Howie walks over to him and goes, I'm sorry, what would you say? And he says it again, and Howie grabs him by the face mask, pulls him to him, pops his helmet off, and gives him an uppercut, lifts him off the ground, and drops him. <laughs> and Shanahan, Shanahan's in the tower, and Shanahan starts screaming at Howie, you can't drop out, my, you can't knock out my first-round draft choice, da, 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 da. And Howie says, that's the problem with this organization. we got a softie up there now. And Al's off by himself. He just gives Howie the slow clap as Howie walks off the field. <laughs> I got more stories about Howie. I don't want to spend any more time on Howie. Yeah, Frank Brakowski with us. Uh, tell you know you've talked before. You've mentioned Charlie Sheen, and we've talked about it. You were in that circle where you know you were living the life, and you were rubbing elbows with celebrities and NFL players and and whatnot. You know that had to be a fun time of your life. It it was. I was single, living in L.A. You know, twenty five, twenty six years old, and had some money in my pocket and. 
living near the beach. And I mean, what's not to like? You know, if you don't take advantage of that, I, I don't know who who wouldn't enjoy those those times. And I had just told a story to a friend the other day, and uh, Charlie. I just saw Platoon. It was 1985. Platoon was a huge hit, and it was a great. You know, I just loved the movie. And I go to the game, and Charlie's sitting in the front row. I'm like, oh my god, I was just starstruck. You know, I was like, Charlie. Oh my god, I just saw the movie. Come in the locker room after the game. And so he came in the locker room, and we ended up just hitting off. Like, Howie and I hit it off really fast. Just when you, you meet somebody and you just become instant, really good friends. And it was like that with Howie, and I'm still real close with Howie today. And, and Charlie, I, 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 I've lost touch with Charlie for no other reason than he went one way, I went the other way. Um, and, you know, Charlie's a sweet, kind, generous, smart, funny guy. You know, what we saw in this debacle that we witnessed recently, or not recently, probably the last six, five, six years, was late stages of addiction and psychosis. It was, it was horrible to, to see him like that because he's, he's a good, good guy. Um, so it's tough. I, and I, we don't talk, not for any other reason than we just kind of parted ways. And uh, we owned a ranch together in Montana for eight years together. Um, you, you, uh, you know, we talk about you being a, you know, a New York guy or an East Coast guy. And some of the great pickup basketball that's played out there. Did you ever go to Rucker Park? Did you ever go play pickup basketball? And you know, I, the playground legends of that era. I I did. I I've been to Rucker's Park. I think I played there maybe twice. It's a tough place for a white kid from Long Island to get to get into. Um, but I went and watched a lot, and it was so much fun. It's like you you just don't know what kind of fun and humor that evolves from this competition of basketball in the inner cities. My dad would drive me over to the other side of the island. We lived on the North Shore, which was more the affluent. I grew up in a working-class neighborhood surrounded by extreme wealth on the North Shore of Long Island, Oyster Bay. I was in a little town, little working-class town called Babel. And my dad would take me, if it was a Saturday, he wasn't working, he'd take me early, and, and I'd try and hide from him because I was scared. I was a 14-, 15-year-old kid. He would take me across the island and dump me off at the Black Parks and, you know, I didn't have a choice but to play. I would just go stand on the side and hope that someone would ask me to, to get in. Um, and eventually I was accepted and I competed and they, they, they knew my name and, and it, was, it was, wasn't scary anymore, right? So, but that's where I cut my, my teeth was playing against that talent, right? It, it didn't matter what color your skin was. You had to compete. And if you didn't compete, you didn't get in the game. When did you know basketball was going to be your thing? You know, I didn't, Johnny. I I never dreamt of playing basketball. It was just something that happened, and I ended up growing and being tall and getting a scholarship. Like, I never thought of playing pro ball as I'm going to college. I went to Penn State. Penn State's not a, not a great basketball school. It was, the best basketball, it was the best school that offered me a scholarship. That's why I went to Penn State. I didn't go there for the program thing. No, I'll go there and I'll play pro ball. And my coach, I was a junior, and at the end of the season, he said, if, if Brick plays like he did this year, he'll be on an NBA roster the following year. And I was like, is he talking about me? Like, I never, it never crossed my mind. And then, you know, I started to think, well, I could play in Europe, and then maybe I could play here, and blah, 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 blah. And I was like, I could make some money? My God. I mean, oh. <laughs> so, so I never had this dream of playing pro ball. It just. It just took on a life of its own and snowballed, and you know I'm, I was blessed to just be able to do what I did. It was just I, as I'm talking about it, it still shocks me that it played out the way it played out. 
Frank Prakowski with us, a longtime NBA big man. Uh, look, you've been around winning franchises and losing franchises, both as a player and then later working with the Players Association. Help us out with, you know, some of the trademark things that you see winning franchises doing, and maybe it's an off-the-court thing. Maybe it's little things. Can you tell who's a winner by looking at the little things? You know, the, it's, a, it's a great question question that it could be a lot of things, right? But for me, it's do you have a leader on that team that competes every night, like a Gary Payton? Gary wasn't a great teammate, but he was a great competitor. And if you have the leader of that team competing every night, then it forces everybody else to compete every night. If you have a guy like me that wants to mix it up every night, well, now everybody else is starting to mix it up. So I think that competition, that these superstars that kind of skip out to the court and get their 30 one night and get their 10 the next night and kind of play to the media, it just drives me crazy. The guys, the Warriors, there's so few left that want to mix it up every night and get after it every night. Like, I remember going to games and thinking, how am I going to play? I don't even know what city I'm in. I just woke up from a nap. The bus, the city, who are we playing? Do I have any beefs with anybody we're playing tonight? Do I have to settle anything or look out for anything? So you're constantly managing this thing. But when you get to the court and someone hits you or someone scores on you, it's on. Like for me, for Gary, for Buck Williams, for Oak, for you go down the list. Michael Jordan, obviously, not to not to compare myself to Michael Jordan, but that son of a gun wanted to get after it every night, every night. And that, so the, a long answer to your short question is that competition. It's that leader that's going to compete every night, like a Tim Duncan or a David Robinson. So that that would be my first first thing. Now, how did you know? Like, because you know, if something needed to be settled, what do you do in a case where like? something happens early in the season and you don't see that guy or that team for a while. I mean, do you still, like, do you make a notation, like, the next time I see that guy, uh, we got something to talk about? Hell, yeah. <laughs> Hell, yeah. It was, a constant, it was a constant battle of, like, okay, I got him last time for good reason. I got to look out for him. Does he want more? Does he want to go at it again? You know, the first couple minutes of the game – I will establish whether I want to get after it, and he'll establish whether he wants to get after it. And it's kind of this thing, this dance you do with people that you compete against, right? It's, I, a lot of guys come through the league, like I'll have guys come up to me, go, hey, yeah, I played for eight years. and then If I never battled him, he might have been on the bench in the league or not played my position. I don't know who, the, who they are. I played for a long time. and But tracking it, like knowing – well, that guy might want a piece, piece of me, so i got to keep an eye on him, and da-da-da-da-da. So it was a constant, you know, you, you, the, taking the temperature of the, of the guy you're playing against and see what he wants to get into that night. And we, we would take nights off where I'd say, Oak, you know what, just leave me alone, I'll leave you alone. Rick Mahorn, just, <laughs> what are we going to do? We're going to take it easy on each other tonight, or are we going to mix it up? I remember I was in New Jersey one time, Rick was in New Jersey, and we, I said, I don't really feel like playing in that, Rick. You and me, sure just, we'll go through the motions tonight. You know, <laughs> and there's, there's deals like that. How often do you think that happens? Because I, I think sometimes we look at the schedule and we go, okay, back-to-back, long road trip, uh, team wanting to get home. Like sometimes you can tell one team's there to play and maybe another team isn't just feeling it. Uh, you know, how often do you think that happens in, with an 82-game schedule? 
Oh, it's got to happen a lot, John. It's got, you know, and it depends on the makeup of the team. Like, I, I'd walk into the arena sometimes just cross-eyed, like I said earlier, thinking, how, how am I going to compete? How am I going to get after it? And then one thing leads to another, and you're, it's on, right? It's, it, and that's the problem. I, I, I golf, and if I'm playing bad in golf, I can't go anywhere with it. It's just me. Where <laughs> basketball, if I'm playing bad, there's a lot of stuff I can do to get it going, right? I can dive on a loose ball. I can hit somebody, have somebody hit me, or just block. There's something I can do to get myself going, and and that's how I did. But there are times where, as a team, you walk into the arena and you know there is no way we're going to be able to compete as a team. It's just whether it's jet lag or, the you know, whatever it is, or just accumulation of of basketball, you know. And, And you look at teams, like anybody can beat anybody on any given night. We've always said that. And there's a lot of reasons for that, but great teams will walk in and lose to a bad team by 40 something. Uh, Frank think, how, how does that happen? Yeah. Frank, let me, let me ask you, 14 years, you mentioned, you said Gary Payton, great competitor, not a great teammate. Who's a, what makes a great teammate? Who are, when I say great teammate, who's the best teammate you ever had? Maggie Johnson. Bar none. Bar none. And if I had to start a team, like if you asked me, there's a lot of questions that float around like, who was the best player you ever played against? Who was the toughest player? Who was this? Who was that? The, 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 the question I like is, if you were to start a team, who would be your, your five or your eight? And I would start with Magic first because he controlled the game. He had the ball in his hands. He started center as a friggin' rookie when Kareem went down and, and had 42, 15, and 8. So that's a great teammate. And he was always pumping his boys up. He was always, like he's screaming at James to get out on the wing and, when James hears Magic screaming, he's getting out of the wing and he's busting his butt. Byron Scott coming down, come on, Cap, come on. So he's constantly pumping you up. He's constantly getting you into your game and getting you the ball where you want like no other point guard I ever played with. I imagine the Stocktons and the Mark Prices and those other guys were like that, um, but I didn't experience them like I experienced Magic. And Gary, I say Gary wasn't a great teammate. Gary wanted to go after somebody and get, get going. And he would go to the hole, and if he couldn't score, he'd pass the ball a lot of times. But he was looking out for Gary. And, you know, a great, great player, Hall of Famer, blah, 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 blah. But there are certain guys that play a certain way that you that, that brings the team together and brings you in together. And Gary, for Gary, was competition. He was going to compete every night. We're watching a Blazers team with Damian Lillard, and, you know, he he, he is – you know, extended his contract with the Blazers. But, you know, there's some pressure and there's some talk out there from people, uh, even players in the league. J.R. Smith came out and said, you know, Dame's rotting in Portland. And um, what advice would you give to Dame as his career now? You know, he's looking at the at the final leg more or less as he looks at the next five or six years. Yeah. You know, I, I, I haven't communicated with Damon in probably six months, but – I, I always felt for Damon because I thought his loyalty was misplaced. Remember uh, Pat Tillman? Yep. With the with the Arizona team that ended up dying in Iraq or where Afghanistan, wherever it was. I thought he had a dis, some kind of loyalty disorder in that, like Arizona. I think it was New Orleans offered him three times as much as Arizona, but because Arizona drafted him, he stayed in Arizona. Dame has this sense of loyalty to the Blazers, which is admirable, right? We all we all ad- admire a superstar like that being loyal to a town and a franchise. But I wanted him to understand, look, 
I want to see you take care of yourself, too. I don't want you to look back and go, man, you know that loyalty thing that kind of, kind of messed up my career. I said, Dame, you, you don't own Portland anything. You don't owe them anything. You owe yourself to make sure you have the best career and the most rewarding career of your, of your time here, and it's so short. I said, don't be afraid to go somewhere else, to go win somewhere else. Um, but he loves Portland, and, and Portland's a great town to play in, and, you know, he's, he's just a good-hearted kid. I wish we had a hundred of Damian Lillard's in the league and C.J. McCollum's. I thought C.J. is such a great kid, too, so it's, it's, a, it's a, balancing, a balancing act for Dame. He's just a loyal, good, good-hearted kid. Brick, I, I love having you on. We got to go to a break, uh, but we'll get you back on soon. You got a podcast you're doing too. Tell people where they can find it. They want to hear more Frank Bukowski. It's not up and going yet, but John Sally and, our, Sally and I are in talks right now to put together a podcast around old school versus the new school, or the, the <laughs> old way of playing versus the new one. So we're going to have fun with it, and uh, I, I appreciate you saying something, Johnny. I always love coming on. I love to come on more with you. Let's do it's it. It's always fun. And I want to I got to shout out to Eric Sprunk. Eric Sprunk loves you and always talks about how great that you are for the city there in sports. So well, I appreciate that and I appreciate that you come on. We'll get you back on. Let's do it more regularly. Let's uh, that way we uh we get you get you caught up and when things are happening we can talk about it. Let's do it, Johnny. Have a great summer. All right, Brick. Thanks for coming on. That's Frank Brickowski. Great stuff. Leave it here. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Good stuff from the brick, Frank Burkowski. He could tell stories all day. What was the what was your favorite part of that interview, Stephen? Well, I love hearing about just the trash talkers. Because that's uh, you know, that's the one thing back in the day is it seems like there was better trash talking than there is nowadays. So I'd love to hear stories about Bird. Like Bird always seems like he was the ultimate trash talker. I mean, there's always the story of, uh, you know, he got, there's a, I forget what game it was, but they put a white guy on him and he just took it as disrespect. And so they just went out and killed him. Like the, that kind of stuff is awesome. So anytime it's trash talking and bird, man, I'm in. I like that. How about you, Sean? Favorite part uh, of the interview? Magic Johnson stories. The fact that yeah. he, you know, you asked him who was your favorite teammate. And he he named a star. I thought that was super interesting. Yeah. And Magic Johnson did he did I hear it correctly that Magic Johnson at the center position put up forty two yes. fifteen and eight. Yeah, that's that's crazy. Yeah, Magic could play all five positions. I mean, I think and and probably would have been a Hall of Famer regardless of where he played. And I thought it was interesting too because he raised an interesting point that sometimes the best player isn't a good teammate. Like. It, it jarred me a little bit when he started talking about Gary Payton being a Hall of Fame player, but not the best teammate he ever had. And, you know, we always think about great teammates being role players. When he mentioned Magic, to your point, it was interesting. But the fact that he pointed out, like, Gary Payton, you know, played at a high level and was fantastic, but wasn't the best teammate necessarily, doesn't surprise me that... You know, Peyton's that way. I, I had a run-in with Peyton years ago. Peyton had made a promise to Oregon State that he was going to donate $5 million towards the uh, basketball program. He had made them a, a promise. Like and, and Oregon State, like a lot of universities, when they get those pledges, they, they mark it down. Like, hey, we're counting on that money coming in. And I was uh, covering the NBA Finals at the time. 
and Gary Payton was part of uh, one of the teams, and I was sent to the finals uh, with the directive of write a column about what happened to the $5 million donation that Gary Payton had pledged to Oregon State. And it ended up being like this whole dramatic exchange that I had with Peyton at the arena. And I was like, dude, did you promise? Like, did you, what, what is going on with that gift? And he was like, you know, why are you even asking about me? I go, because Oregon State's wondering where their gift is. And Oregon State, Bobby Carroll is the AD at Oregon State at the time. He told me, I said, I'm going to cover the NBA Finals. And I believe Gary Payton was in Miami at the time with the Heat. They were playing the Mavericks in the finals. I think it was like 2010, 2011, right in there. And so I was sent there, and Bobby Carolis, the AD at Oregon State, said, hey, don't, I don't want you to say that we asked. Like, because he wasn't asking. But he said, I am kind of curious. Like, are we going to get the check or not? Because Oregon State was wanting to make renovations to Gill Coliseum and all this stuff. And so they're kind of wondering, pra- basketball practice facility. And I can, I'll never forget the the uh, media relations guy with the team getting really upset with me for asking the question of Gary Payton during the finals. He was like, why are you asking him that during the finals? Well, I'm asking him that because it's a story. I think he did make good on it. Leave it here. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Big show tomorrow. Bruce Barnum, Portland State football coach, will be with us. Big Sky Media Day was held in Spokane, but we will catch up with the Vikings coach on tomorrow's program. Also tomorrow, John Wilner going to revisit us, uh, the guru of the Pac-12 conference. He will be joining us. We'll be uh, previewing Friday's Pac-12 Media Day. whole bunch of news on the college football front, but uh, I'm, I'm grateful that you're along for the ride and contributing to this show. Um, I was I felt a little let down by Bob's subsequent call earlier in the show, guys. I was expecting fireworks, and we didn't really get it. I was hoping so. He was gone for so long. I was hoping he had some cool story about him, you know, going in and yelling and starting a scene. But uh, you know, instead he got offered a job, and so guess, it was a little different. Little twist there in the end. Uh, coming up, uh, we got we got uh, Peter Sampson talk timbers. What do we got? We got on talk Sunday timbers evening? tonight. I figured. See, I'm I'm learning this Wednesdays. stuff. Wednesdays, Wednesdays, talk timbers every other day. Pulse. So, see, that took me 15, 17 years to learn that. Well, it's ever changing, right? And then well, you'll forget by tomorrow. It'll be fine. Uh, tomorrow, I'll be like, "What do we got coming up?" Um, I appreciate you guys, man. Uh, you guys always bring it, and you know, I know we don't, we probably don't talk about it on air because we don't do a bunch of self congratulation stuff. But I want to give you guys a fist bump. You guys have been fantastic, Steven, You've been a great addition to the show. I appreciate it. That's uh, a lot of fun so far. Sean, you got the pipes, man, and and you are taking care of a lot of the stuff that people don't even know goes on. So I appreciate you out there uh, working on the podcast and doing all the stuff behind the scenes. Appreciate that. Grab the podcast. Make sure that Sean's work doesn't go for naught. Subscribe to it. Share it with friends. That's how it works. That you know. That's how other people find the podcast. If you uh, if you give give it a rating and and give a uh, give some feedback. Uh, we are back tomorrow with another great show.